Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. <laughs> you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR Smokenstein, THC, or you can call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride of Smokenstein, the India Harley, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Now... If you're here to listen to the debut episode of It's Alive Alive podcast, well, tough shit. It's gone. It's been taken away by the proper authorities and locked into the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones. Yeah, so when we started the project, the goal was always to create the best shows possible. Like shows that we could take pride in and that were worth listening to. So quality means a lot to us. That being said, when we listened back to the debut Ghostface trilogy of episodes, while we were proud of the story we told, and it's the same story that makes up this episode today, we felt it was our duty to the listeners and to the story to go back and make the episodes we had set out to make on day one. When we first recorded the original episodes, we were still finding our voice, and so we had an idea of what we wanted, but we still hadn't figured it out. Over the past few months, we feel we've started to deliver better and better shows, but the feeling that something was missing from our debut bugged me. So for that reason, we're going to do exactly what the movie studios do and hit the reset with an It's Alive Alive reboot. Today, we're going to retell the story of the Ghostface Massacres that ran from 1996 to the year 2000. Same narrative, new comments and discussion and buttloads of enthusiasm and energy and the, the original, which survives only on Patreon, was very monotone. So just like the legendary galactic historian George Lucas, see episode 14 to get that reference, we're going to get into the story again, remastered and retold in ultra high definition awesomeness. Except for a podcast, so... No HD. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. It's all just made up of Matrix bullshit. So sit back, put your earbuds in your ear holes, and let's get into this story one more time. The story we're going to start today is about a little town in California that suffers from a violent curse, spanning over 25 years and spawning 12 killers over six separate massacres. It will be difficult for anyone who is a true crime horror fan to not have heard the case of Woodsboro and the Ghostface Killers. This bizarre series of events has spread through generations, infecting one or two disillusioned teens every few years, with the results yielding a body count of 48 victims, most of those being teenagers. For us to cover this story as a whole, we need to break them up over three episodes. 
focusing on the first set of killers today and looking at the first run of copycats and possible conspiracy angle over the next two episodes. Like I said earlier, this story stretches over 25 years and there's a lot of story there to tell, but mashing it all into a few episodes is very difficult and could get a little repetitive. So what we're going to do is focus just on the first three sprees that occurred between 1996 and the year 2000. And over time, I'll share the rest of the stories with you because I think each of these attacks really deserve their own episodes in Spotlight. Today, our focus is on the OG killers, the original ghostface Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. Our sources for the story are the books Wrongly Accused and the Woodsboro Murders by Gail Weathers and Out of Darkness by Sidney Prescott, along with excerpts from the Journal of Stu Mocker. So Gail is like the main source for all these stories. Like She's literally written the book on the ghostface killings, hasn't she? That she has. For each spree, there is an accompanying book written by Gail. She's actually taken a lot of shit for this over the years. Some people blame her books for the ongoing attacks, with each release being adapted to film and eventually inspiring the next round of Ghostface attacks. So when it comes to Stu's input here, we use the word journal loosely because it's more like a scrapbook of death and thoughts. And what we use from the book are the little bits that made sense and were relevant to our story. See, I used to have one of these copies, you know, the ones covered in upside down crosses and pentagrams with metal lyrics and pics of hot got girls pasted on the pages. Yeah, I had one of them. Hot got girls and all. Right. <laughs> no, I had uh, your man from him on my phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I follow him on Facebook. He's a bit. Is he still around? Yeah, I don't think he's it. I think him are a separate thing without him for a good <laughs> while now. I totally would have thought he was dead at this stage from cancer. I mean, that man used to brag that he preferred to smoke. Uh, he preferred Marlboro to air. Yeah, I, I read that. Yeah. But I literally saw a quote from him in the last few weeks that came from like the early 2000s. And he was like, was it drinking in sex or smoking in sex? He doesn't really do either. That they were uh, very infrequent and he got little pleasure from either. Smoking in sex. It sounded like it you were saying smoking insects. Oh, smoking <laughs> like, insects. I don't think anyone gets any pleasure from smoking insects. No, it's a very it fucking either, weird thing to do. It was either smoking and sex or maybe alcohol. And oh, like, there's a spider and light her up. <laughs> <laughs> she checked her shoulder when I said there's a spider. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. So our story begins in Woodsboro, California in 1978 when Billy Loomis was born to parents Hank and Nancy. To the locals of Woodsboro, the Loomises were your typical upper middle class family with Hank being the family's main breadwinner as a pretty accomplished lawyer. In Hank's early days, he had built a pretty good reputation for himself working for Sunrise Studios in Hollywood, eventually becoming lead lawyer for the studio. It was from this experience and the reputation built by Hank at the time that he was able to open his Woodsboro practice and from that position he had done pretty well for himself in turn allowing nancy to stay home and focus on being the primary caregiver to their only child billy lucky sounds like a good lawyer would come in handy for billy later got it for you (laughs) (laughs) from what we know of billy's early childhood it was pretty average and uneventful there's no major stories or warning signs of what billy would eventually become and he is described as a good well-mannered child who really didn't cause his parents any real problems He was just your average normal kid in what looked to be a pretty normal American family. So no unusual serial killer signs here, no Billy Bedwetter in the Loomis house. I wonder if they had any pets though, how did he treat them? So what we're talking about here is the McDonald triad, 
The McDonald triad posits that animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting in childhood is indicative of later aggressive and violent behavior in adults, particularly homicidal behavior and sexually predatory predatory behavior. I said that very seductively. Sexually predatory (laughs) behavior. (laughs) That wasn't a good old Josh either. That was a Christ. (laughs) However, other studies claim to have not found statistically significant links between the triad and violent offenders. Further studies have just suggested that these behaviors are actually more linked to childhood experience of parental neglect, brutality, or abuse. No shit. Yeah. Some argue this in turn results in homicidal proneness. The triad concept as a particular combination of behaviors linked to violence may not have any particular validity, however, and it has been called an urban legend. I mean, I think it is. I think it's been proven now that it, it, it's not is true. It's just like, it's like a lot of coincidence. I mean, well, no, I think that was an urban No, I think definitely if they're killing animals, that's a sign. That is fine. That is fine. Okay. Okay. Fine. 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 But the bedwetting thing. Ah, no, come you on, can't. you can't. There's That's... a lot of millions. I would say abuse and fucking parental neglect and brutality will be the higher up reasons. But I mean, like, pissing your pants every now and again. But if you have a neglectful parent and, like, do you know, I mean, like, if you watch, like, Song for Raggy Boy and he wets his bed and he's brought out yeah, in yeah, his I underwear and the mattress is put on the back, like, that's neglect, going to, yeah. yeah. And, and so abuse, it, it is so, kind yeah. of a secondary kind of. And I think I remember. I'm not 100% sure, and I have said before, I hate when podcasts like just spout out shit that they don't know what they're talking about, and you know it's wrong. <laughs> but I think it was, it, no, it wasn't Egin. I was going to say it was Egin. It was uh, Gary Ridgway, yeah. the Green River yeah. Killer. As far as I know, he used to have wet the bed, and mm-hmm. his mother used to kind of embarrass the shit out of him for Yeah, it, like, I think I remember like, reading that about him. go out and beat him for it and fucking make him wash up and just wash the dirty sheets. And Of all the things you could do to a child, I think that's one of the worst is is, is shaming them like that for wetting the bed. Oh, you you yeah. are going to feel that anyway, regardless of what age you are. I mean, you see that, I mean, that, that kind of like shame, you don't need it reinforced. No, I, I mean, like you said, so I think that kind of fits more into the triad because of parental neglect. Yeah, you know? yeah. Whereas I don't think it's an actual symptom of a serial no. killer. No. You know, and even like if you're an extremely nervous fucking person or a person with high anxiety, a child with high anxiety, yeah. that's strong Anyway, at some point in middle school, Billy met and befriended local horror nerd Stu Mocker. Stu was also born in 1978 and grew up in 261 Turner Lane, Woodsboro, in a large farmhouse with his parents and older sister, Leslie. Now, I have to point out at this stage, we don't have a lot of information on Stu's early life as his family have stayed pretty tight-lipped on the subject of Stu, turning down many highly lucrative interviews, movies, TV and book deals over the years. Understandably, they want to try and forget about the massacre and to live their life as best they can under the circumstances. They have since left Woodsboro and have tried to make themselves almost anonymous to the outside world. It's for this reason that we don't directly name them here. I'd like to respect their wishes and just leave them be. If you really need to know more about them, I'm sure you could just Google them in your own time. But remember, there are victims in this story, too, who also lost their lives to their son's actions. Maybe it's just time to let them heal and get on with their life. Yeah, everyone forgets about the families being victims, too. But that's it. I mean, like, I was just listening to something about the BTK killer's family, mm-hmm. and they had to change their name and everything. And apparently a lot of them do that. I mean, like, Ted Bundy's got a daughter out there somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd change my name if I was like, Bundy. still living, apparently, uh, rumoured to be in Seattle, which is where he would have lived, I think, for a while. I think he went to he went to college in Seattle for a little while. 
Okay. I, if you want to know more about that, we, it's on our Real Monsters uh. anyway, so you can check that out. Yeah. What were you asking? Seattle Rough. Seattle Rough? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I uh, I have no idea. It was um kind of the place where grunge was born. I'm thinking of somewhere else. It's a city and I just can't. can't. Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I've never seen that movie, but I assume you have. So did it look rough when you saw it? Oh, it's a love story. They're never going to show any city rough. <laughs> well, they're going to set a love story in a, a rough background. Well, I suppose, yeah. Well, I like, I like, I do like a proper, as in like rose tinted glasses. Romeo and Juliet was romance. For <laughs> was it? Oh, Tromeo. I thought you said Romeo and Juliet. I was like, what that was, was a back Romeo garden. Oh, <laughs> oh that's the norms. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> What we do know about Stu is he was quirky, a little eccentric, loved attention, had a dark sense of humor, and a massive love for horror movies, or more specifically, slasher movies. Sounds like I get on really well with this guy. This description may make him sound like an obvious suspect, whoops, for the cops when the eventual murders and investigation starts, but to be fair, who doesn't know a kid from school fitting this exact description? As I just said myself, I could have been this kid, only I was a little more awkward shy than I was outwardly quirky towards people, you know, that I didn't really know. Yeah, yeah, see, he was a class clown, like. Exactly. Wait, does that make me like a class clown, or the sad class clown? Wanting to entertain, but too shy to perform. That's sad. (laughs) sounds like the perfect description of my teenage years i was a super awkward teen yeah i think i was like well every teen has that phase well you and me have said it multiple times at this point that if we could go back in time and Mm -hmm. be kids again no problem Mm -hmm. but the deal would have to include a clause of we get to skip the ages of 13 to 19 (laughs) absolutely i'd be fine with with 18 just get me to 18 17 maybe I suppose once you get through those, the first half of the teens, you're really through yeah. the worst of it. The second half of the teens is more heartbreak. The first half of the teens yeah. is more awkwardness. I think the second half is like grappling like kind of like new emotions. And then the first half of it is trying to figure out what the fuck to do with your body. What the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think if I could get to just if you like, skip 13 to 16, yeah. just those three years. I'd be uh, happy either. Yeah. Or just like I said to you before, go back into that age, go back to your teens with the knowledge you have now. Yep. yep. Do you know what I mean? That this thing isn't going to matter in 10 years' time, so oh, don't waste three days God, freaking out I about it. Running from what all friends have said over the years, Billy and Stu first started running in the same circles around 1989-1990, just before their teenage years, bonding over a shared love of all things horror. Together, the two used to spend hours fantasizing about the perfect slasher movie death scenes and how they'd play out, framing the conversations as movie ideas to the outside listeners. But that we know would eventually be played out in real life, leaving six victims and starting a legacy of death that would continue to plague Woodsboro for years after. Again, to me, though, this is normal. I mean, we both hung out with similar groups. We would have been in the metal community, punks, goths, skaters, metalheads, horror goes hand in hand with all these kids. My friend group was a blend of all these subgenres, and this is the type of conversations we had while we watched slasher movies. Yeah, friend group is pretty much the same. So it's really safe to say at this point that being bullied or being outcast or victims in the schoolyard was not the motive for these school-going killers. They were, from what we can see, pretty well-liked and popular guys. They had a pretty good circle of friends, and both guys even had girlfriends. In fact, Stu's third victim was a recent enough ex-girlfriend, and his current girlfriend at the time, Tatum Riley, would also fall victim to his and Billy's real-life horror movie, Massacre. 
this was a huge issue at the time, the whole Columbine effect. Yeah, they went after everything at the time. Comics, video games, music. So obviously horror and slashers would be top of the list when it came to explaining away the violence among seemingly average teens from the late 90s onwards. Introvert teens who enjoyed horror, metal, rap games or comics were seen as public enemy number one. Think like Muslims after 9-11. Serious profile going on here. So Columbine was a shooting that took place on April 20th, 1999 in Littleton, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. The shooting is also commonly referred to as the Columbine High School Massacre with a total of 15 dead. The shooters, seniors Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, murdered 12 students and one teacher and injured over 21 others. The murders came to an end with Klebold and Harris turning the guns on themselves, both committing suicide. The shooting marked the deadliest school shooting in American history at the time. The events of the shooting unfolded within the span of under 30 minutes, with Klebold and Harris arriving at the school at around 11.20am with duffel bags in hand. They first entered the cafeteria with no intention of beginning to start shooting yet. Each bag contained a propane bomb set to detonate during the cafeteria's busiest lunch period. Prior to their arrival at the school, Klebold and Harris had each placed a backpack containing small propane bombs, and a pipe bomb and an aerosol canister at a meadow located three miles away from the school. These bombs partially detonated, alerting the police to Klebold and Harris's earlier activities. Following placing the bombs in the cafeteria, Harris and Klebold went back out to the parking lot to wait for the bombs to detonate. However, once they realized the bombs failed to detonate, they began to make their way back to entering the school. The beginning of the shooting was marked by Klebold tossing a pipe bomb into the parking lot, which partially detonated, catching the attention of surrounding students who were there on their lunch break. Many students were confused, thinking it was part of some sort of senior prank, while others took note of their trench coats and concealed weapons, beginning to run from the parking lot. The first victim claimed by the shooting was 17-year-old Rachel Scott, who was shot while eating lunch with a friend in front of the entrance of the school. Klebold and Harris proceeded to enter the school, making their way to the cafeteria. Upon entering, they were shooting at students in the hallway who were under the impression that the guns they were using were paintball guns, thus continuing to walk towards them. One of these students was sophomore Lance Kirkland, who was shot four times lying on the floor calling out for help when Klebold stood above him and said, Sure, man, I'll help you, to which he shot him in the face. Kirkland survived, and as Klebold walked away, he apologized, saying, Sorry, man, according to Kirkland. Yeah, sure you were, you dickhead. Klebold and Harris passed through the cafeteria, not shooting at anyone. As they made their way to the staircase leading to the library, according to ABC News, witnesses say they were laughing and shouting positive things such as, This is what we always wanted to do! This is awesome! Knobs. At this point in the shooting, the police were made aware that there were shooters in the school through a custodian staff member calling the head deputy. So two of the deputies who arrived were in the process of rescuing two injured students on a hilltop adjacent to the school when Harris noticed the police officers and went back over to the entrance and began shooting at the deputies. They began shooting back and after one of the deputies had fired three rounds of his ammo, Harris retreated back inside with no one hit. The next area of the school Klebold and Harris approached was the library where 52 students, two teachers and two librarians were hiding. In the library, they had an agenda in which they were targeting students of colour and anyone who played a sport at the school. 
According to witnesses, Harris stated that anybody with a white hat or sports emblem is dead, as wearing a white hat at Columbine High School was an athlete tradition. Many students attempted to remove or hide their white hats. Kleebold approached a table where three students were hiding under. Sophomores Craig Scott and Matthew Ketcher Ketcher and senior Isaac Scholes. Isaiah. Isaiah Scholes. Upon discovering them and noticing Isaiah, who was black, Klebold exclaimed, I found an N-word. According to Scott, Klebold then proceeded to taunt Isaiah with more derogatory slurs and then shot him, killing him. In the library, Klebold and Harris killed 12 and injured 10. They left at around 11.36am, proceeding to toss pipe bombs into the hallway as they were heading back down to the cafeteria. They made rounds around the school, storming down hallways and looking in classrooms before re-entering the library, which was mostly empty of students, except for those who could not move due to their injuries. According to police reports, by 12.08pm, Klebold and Harris had committed suicide. Following the shooting, fear was instilled in students nationwide. While some schools in the US implemented stricter security measures such as checking bags and installing metal detectors, there was no action taken at governmental level in terms of policy or legislation. At the community level, there were several accounts of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health struggles among survivors, along with a survivor committing suicide a year after and a survivor's mother committing suicide six months after. In terms of immediate responses, the school was shut down for the rest of the year with only two or three weeks remaining. Classes were held for students at a high school nearby. The Columbine shooting raises several important questions relating to gun violence, mental health among teenagers, and to also what this suggests about American culture. If you want to know more about this, I can see in the crystal ball since this is our debut episode that in about 14 <laughs> to 15 weeks' time, we cover this on a show called Real Monsters on our Patreon. <laughs> in depth, and I mean in depth, depth. Yeah. I mean, down until we were going to go through the timeline of what happened that day. So it's like like time stamped the whole day. Because this thing went down for it. I mean, I know it's there like a half an hour, but the actual process of the cops fucking clearing the building afterwards Aww. took all day. Of course it did with that man but dead. Like. They didn't even know how many was in there though. Because, you know, when they were looking, when they were getting um, witnesses coming out, when the students were coming out, they were saying stuff like, you know, like, um, oh, I saw two guys in hats and two guys in trench coats and then two more come out and the two guys that had taken off their fucking hats and it's like, mm. well, I saw t- two guys without hats. So to them, it was like, well, we know there's four in there. There's two guys with hats, two guys without hats. There's a guy with a trench coat. There's a guy without a trench coat. They were just fucking taking off their jackets and hats as they were going along. <laughs> just, but, uh, so the cops so think they're facing like a so whole they had, army. They like- had no idea how many was in there. But again... We can see, like, the Billy and Stu were not the only ones. I mean, this was something that was mm. in the 90s. This seemed to be affecting America as a whole. Yeah. That these kind of... And it was that... Which I'd hate to say it because it does kind of just back up the whole, oh, violence in movies. It was that subgenre, but it was because we were ignored. I say we because we were in that kind of like that metal job. You were kind of the the freaks and gots and mm. stuff like that, and you were kind of pushed to the side by the fucking athletes and stuff like uh-huh. that. And not that we were no, none of us ever fucking planned to go shoot up the fucking school or anything like that. Uh, most would just be like, yeah, they're dickheads, fuck them, Do you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But I mean, in America, where guns were easy to get because i mean when we get into the story on real monsters these guys were able to get there there was a loophole for them to get these guns 
you know, whereas they, if they'd went to a gun store mm-hmm. and tried to buy the gun, they'd have to go through all the weights and the checks and all this stuff. But they went to a gun, um, gun uh, show. Oh, gun show. Uh, and then you have guys selling at stalls. Are you allowed to do that with oh, gun yeah, shops? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're selling, they're kind of selling them second-hand guns and, second, uh, and, and selling them from stalls and the checks are less. And uh, so, so can a convict go into these shows and buy one? Well, that's... I'm not 100% sure. I always assume so. And I mean, again, you have to realize as well, not everybody there is going to be reputable. So, I mean, even if... Oh, I thought it'd be heavily... there is some stuff they got to fill out, there, there's always going to be one or two guys there that'll be like, well, you know, I can't sell you this gun here, but if you got the cash, I'll meet you out of my car. I trust you, Mr. Mafia, you know? man. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, while things are going well for Billy at school, his home life was a different story. You see, all was not well in the Loomis household, and it would have an effect on Billy that would ignite his thirst for blood and vengeance. At the time, it was a well-kept secret that Nancy suffered horribly from various different mental health issues. And from what I read, Nancy dealt with severe depression, anxiety, paranoia, and wild fits of rage almost daily. So this meant Billy was often witness to Nancy violently attacking Hank. 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 And she regularly flew off the handle. Poor Hank. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I could get Most it fucking average, basic ass American name, and you stumble <laughs> on Hank. <laughs> Tell you what, <laughs> it wouldn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> These fits of rage were known to be extremely violent, with various police reports for domestic disturbances at the Loomis address. The best, to the best of our knowledge, Billy was never on the receiving end of this rage. In fact, quite the opposite. Nancy was nothing but gentle and caring towards Billy, constantly doting on her only child and son. It's funny the way that works. You you have two different types of killers. The ones that aren't hugged enough and then the ones that mommy hugs a little too much. Definitely. And all the overlove stuff is something we're going to come across time and time again. Just wait until we cover Norma and Norman Bates or Pamela and Jason Voorhees or fucking, um, what's his name? Fucking Ed Gein and his mother, Augusta. Yeah. <laughs> we cover them on Real Augusta. Monsters as well in a few. Do we? Yes, in a few. They were obviously German, yeah? Augusta was, yeah. yeah. She was a German descent, yeah. She was a German immigrant. Yeah. Um, and hell, we're even going to see it in the next episode when uh, Na- we'll see how far Nancy really is willing to go for old baby Billy. So, Ooh. But for this story, at least Nancy eventually got the help she needed and was put on the medication to help ease her symptoms and improve her quality of life. But with Hank, the damage had been done. And over the painstaking months of Nancy trying different drugs and dosages, trying to find the right combination to get her balanced and right, Hank began to distance himself from the family. Rarely being seen at home during this period, instead choosing to take business trips or to work late and sleep on his office couch. The rare time he did stay at home, he almost always opted to sleep in the guest room and at this point just swapped pleasantries with his wife as they briefly passed each other in their halls. That's sad. Now, to be fair to Hank, the Loomises did eventually try marriage counselling and for a while things did start to get better. And that's what made the next reveal a bigger slap in the face for Nancy. About six months into counselling with Hank's back sleeping at home in the master bedroom with his wife, Nancy received a phone call. The anonymous man, which Nancy was once said to have described as cold, creepy and impossible to place her age, told her that Hank had been sleeping with the local woman at Maureen Prescott and that the affair had been going on for years behind her back. No, I don't know what exactly was said in the phone that day because I wasn't there and all involved that were are now dead. 
But the strange man must have been convincing because without confronting Hank and without so much of his thinking about Billy, Nancy packed her bags and bailed while both the Loomis men were at work in school that day, leaving no note or indication of where she had gone or when, if ever, she would be back. Billy was devastated. His doting mother was gone, abandoning him and his father, leaving them in pieces. Billy was angry. Billy wanted answers, answers, but most of all, Billy wanted revenge. Now I kind of feel bad for Billy. He just misses his mom. I say revenge with all that anger and evilness behind it, and you feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I get it. You, you come home from school one day, and the woman who treats you like royalty is up and abandoning you. It, it's understandable to feel angry. Just most people eventually calm the fuck down and go back to reality. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, cute little sneeze. <laughs> 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 but no, Billy, he didn't definitely want to. He definitely didn't want to come back down to reality. And, uh, and what about the creepy phone call? All will be revealed soon. You just gotta hang tough until episode three. Oh, cliffhanger! Now, Woodsboro is a small town, and I think most of our listeners who grow have grown up in small towns could tell you that rumors travel fast around a small place like that. So it didn't take long for Billy to get the answers he was looking for, and with Stu in his ear ramping up the fantasies, it wasn't going to be too long before tragedy would hit Woodsboro and would start a curse on a town that still runs to this day. Nice to know that it's not just small towns in Ireland that can't mind their own fucking business. Yeah, he sneezed wrong in an Irish community and it'll be in the local announcements at Mass at Sunday. So as I said, it didn't take Billy too long to figure out what it was that caused his mother's sudden departure. And while yes, rumours spread through Woodsboro like wildfire and pretty much everyone knew Nancy had left Hank due to his extramarital misdeeds, what they couldn't tell Billy was who he was cheating with. Ooh, juicy gossip and a mystery. So one night after a marathon session of their favourite killer flicks, Billy and Stu decided to start following Hank. Billy was determined to find a homeworking bitch that had driven his mother away, and when he found her, he planned to get rid of her, opening the door for Nancy to return and for his family to be put back together. So we know Billy's motive, but what's Stu's excuse? Stu's excuse is simple. He's a psychopath. He just wanted to live out his horror fantasies. To be honest, I think people sleep on Stu a little bit. Like you say, Billy has a motive here. Billy had a strained home life and was witness to his mother's violent outbursts, not to mention what he might have inherited from Nancy when it comes to his mental health. Stu, on the other hand, had none of that. Stu grew up in a close and loving family. He was just a spoiled and entitled kid who wasn't spanked enough as a child or... You know, maybe spanked a little bit too much, if you know uh-huh. what I mean. Stu was just a psychopath drawn to violence, your average, everyday serial killer piece of shit. There's a chance that without Stu's influence, Billy may have even been helped with therapy and may have never gotten past the fantasy, fantasy stage. I mean, we'll see later when we talk about the murders that Stu's attacks were often more violent and theatrical. He was looking for shock and awe. He wanted to be the big, scary killer from the movies, but instead he was relegated to the stooge, the sidekick. Billy's little lapdog. So it sounds like you think Stu is the real catalyst for all the ghost face stuff. I just think he might be overlooked. And maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I mean, there is another version of these events that really downgrades Stu to just another patsy. And it's something we'll discuss in detail in part three of the series. Right now, I'm just working on the information we had roughly around the time of the first massacre. I don't want people to think I'm downplaying Billy's involvement here either. It is super possible this would have played out all the same way without Stu's involvement. I mean, Billy had some serious mommy issues and an all-around deep hatred for nearly all women. But the likelihood really is that Billy and Stu just formed the perfect storm together, and that storm was about to hit the people of Woodsboro hard. 
I've seen pictures of Billy and I think he was born to kill. Uh, he is sleazy and slimy looking. <laughs> and if you add in stew, it's definitely not a two heads are better than one kind of situation. Like I can only imagine what two sick minds like that could cook up together. No need to imagine because I'm going to tell you. Because <laughs> this is where the hunt begins. The boys went to work planning their little stakeout, deciding to take it in shifts, tailing Hank until his bitten aside revealed herself to them. It didn't take too long for that to happen. That evening, as Billy and Stu sat in the Loomis basement discussing their plan again, they heard Hank call to tell Billy he was heading out for the night. And the guys, being the go-getters they were known to be, sprang to action following Hank to a small motel just at the edge of town. There, Billy and Stu watched him get out of the car, walk to room 203 and knock on the door. It was then Billy saw the face of his first victim and in his mind, the source of all his anger, hate and pain. It was a face that he recognized instantly as Maureen Prescott, the mother of his girlfriend of two years and one of the main sources for this story, Sidney Prescott. The big reveal. (laughs) Sidney Prescott at the time was the only known child of Neil and Maureen Prescott. Sidney was your typical good girl next door kind of type. The type you'd be happy to bring home to meet your parents. A near straight-A student, Sydney was rarely, if ever, in any real trouble. And as far as teenage girls go, she was a relatively mature and level-headed girl for her age. Hooking up with Billy in her sophomore year in Woodsboro High in 1994, the two seemed to have a pretty good relationship, with Sydney being completely in the dark in terms of how far her boyfriend's horror fantasies really would go. With everything I've read, up until the first massacre began, the only real complaint Sydney had towards Billy was that he could be a bit pushy when it came to sex, or to be fair, the lack of sex that was going on in the relationship. Sydney was a virgin when she met Billy, and for 99% of the relationship didn't feel quite ready to fully pop her cherry, much to Billy's frustration. Little did she know, though, it was her virginity that was keeping her alive for most of the first attacks, and we'll have a lot more about that a little later in the episode. You know, I used to kind of feel a small bit bad for Billy in that sense, but the information that's come out in the last four to five years... About yeah. Mr. Loomis's extra, let's just say him and Hank had a few things in common, and we yeah. get into it in later episodes when we talk about what Billy Loomis might have been up to in the background. But Ooh. yeah. <laughs> so basically, what you're saying is all we have to do is stay pure and keep our legs closed and think of Jesus and serial killers when we've got it all. Don't be spreading that Christian propaganda on this podcast. They want us to keep it in their pants, then they should just keep it out of the playground. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Billy and Stu sat in Stu's car in the motel car park for hours waiting for Hank to come out so Billy was seething and had nothing but revenge on his mind the plan was simple wait for Hank to leave then grab Maureen as she made her way out to the car from there they would take her to a nearby wooded area and do what they felt was needed to be done once Hank left, the pair began to pump each other up, really getting the adrenaline pumping. These guys were ready to go, and if Maureen had come out there that night, there is no doubt in my mind they would have killed her there and then. And if they had, maybe it would have, they would have been caught, and this would have all have ended with one tragic death. But fortunately for Billy and Stu, Maureen had other plans that night. Much to the surprise and amusement of the two aspiring killers, Maureen wasn't ready to pack up and go home just yet. And about 40 minutes after Hank left, she had another male caller come to her room. This man's name was Cotton Weary. 
Yes, the cotton weary of TV talk show fame, 100% cotton. This is the story that catapulted cotton to fame in the late 90s and ultimately what will bring on his demise in the year 2000. I was a bit young at the height of his fame, but I found links to 100% cotton online in my early 20s and I was obsessed. There's only like two seasons when I first found it. I swear I missed a week of college and just lay around in bed binging on food and 100% cotton. So juicy and wild. I remember some of the episode taglines like the guy who married a horse and <laughs> I'm going to confront my hooker daughter. Good stuff. Solid trash TV. Loved it in my teens, which leads us nicely in. You see, along with being psychopaths, Billy and Stu were also dumb teenagers. And the thought of old Maureen Prescott whoring around town with not one, but two men in one knife, then going home to play perfect mother to sweet little Sydney tickled their funny bone. This moment of levity brought about a little clarity causing Billy to abort the nice plans instead opting to slow down and plan the murder correctly they wanted to kill Maureen but they wanted to get away with it too using the new edition of Cotton as a pawn Billy and Stu planned to murder Maureen and pin it on Cotton they just had to work out exactly how to do that or at least they thought they did what happened next was one of the best examples of beginner's luck I've ever heard of Billy and Stu began to stalk Maureen the very next day and planned to be ready to attack within a month. With Billy making long detailed plans and Stu's ideas for the murder getting grander by the day. In fact they discussed it so much that the excitement overtook them and instead of waiting the month and following their grand plans they instead jumped on the first opportunity they got less than one week later. That's what happens when you get too excited. Things start to happen fast, things that might require a bit more and consideration message the curse of the premature attack <laughs> premature attackulator sounds like a dirty terminator coming back in time to sexually frustrate you today <laughs> what a way to go so on september 28 1995 as billy and Stu watched the prescott residence from Stu's car a few yards away they saw cotton weary drunkenly make his way up the prescott driveway into the waiting arms of maureen the budding killers were quick to surmise that if Cotton Weary was in the Prescott house, then it's safe to assume neither Neil or Sydney could be there. And unless Maureen was into risky quickies, chances were that they were going to be gone the whole night. This was an opportunity Billy just couldn't pass up, and the decision was made. As soon as Cotton left Maureen alone again in the house, they would strike and Maureen Prescott would die. The first in a long line of bodies. Unfortunately. So around 11pm that night, Cotton fell back out of the Prescott home and into a waiting cab. It was time for the Ghostface killers to claim their first victim. I call them that, but according to Stu's journal, they didn't buy the father death costume for about another nine months. And to be honest, in this instance, it probably suited them better to approach Maureen as is. I mean, Maureen knew Billy as the polite and respectful boyfriend of her daughter, Sydney. And she knew Stu from him dating Tatum Riley, Sydney's BFF. At this point, she had no reason to fear or be suspicious of the pair. Maybe she just thought it was her lucky night. I mean, she did have Hank and Cotton on the same night. I'm not slut shaming, I'm just making an observation. <laughs> we don't know exactly what Billy and Stu said to get entry, but what we do know is once inside, they unleashed a nightmare on this poor woman that would make Freddy Krueger blush. Over the next few hours, they proceeded to rape, torture, disembowel, and stab Maureen, leaving her in the end nothing more than a mess of blood and guts. Yuck. According to Stu's journal, they sat and ate cereal when it was all done because killing is hungry work, and then relaxed watching cartoons until the sun was about to come up. It was at this point they decided to clean themselves up and leave. 
I wonder is that where BTK got the whole cereal box thing from? Where he hid his messages in cereal boxes around Wichita thinking he was being funny. He was a serial killer fanboy. Maybe he took some inspiration from the Ghostface killers. He was a pathetic little shit. We have a full profile up on him on Patreon. I'm such a little bitch. <laughs> so far, this was a crime of opportunity for the pair. And they hadn't really thought about how to tie in cotton. But as they were about to leave, Billy spotted a man's jacket. He was almost sure it was the jacket Cotton had arrived in earlier and he couldn't remember seeing him leave when he leave with it when he left. So Billy grabbed the jacket and pushed the sleeve into a pool of Maureen's blood. He then threw it over himself to hide his face as he left the house. It's here the killers hit another massive stroke of luck because just as Billy turned the corner away from the house, Sydney was arriving home from Tatum's and she caught a brief glimpse of Billy or more specifically a glimpse of Cotton's jacket. It's all coming up millhouse for these guys. This whole crime couldn't have gone any better for the first for the two first timers. Unfortunately for Sydney, though, being home early enough to spot the killer leaving also meant she was the first to come onto the scene of her mother's brutal murder. And it wasn't too long until the press got home on Thirty Four Elm Street was crawling with cops and reporters. Enter Gail Weathers. Well, yeah, but. She was one of many. This crime got a lot of national press. And to be fair to Gail, she's only stuck in the middle of all this because she was very, very good at her job. And because she wrote the best books on the subject. Mm. Gail is a solid investigative reporter. Don't let her more recent morning show fool you. Gail's a good, good, good journalist. Once the investigation began, it didn't take long for Maureen's relationship with Cotton to come to the surface. A relationship Sydney was not ready to accept and along with the forensic evidence showing Maureen had been raped before being killed led Sydney to the conclusion that Cotton had been responsible. This tunnel vision would see Billy and Stu stay free men for at least another year and lead to five more deaths in Woodsboro. Sydney's kind of jumping to conclusions here. She just found out her mother was murdered, who was murdered, lived a sexy double life. How would you react? Yeah, innocent or not, I'd want Cotton to hang. I suppose anything linking him would be enough for, for me to condemn him. So the detectives focused their investigation in on Cotton, and after a little digging, discovered Cotton had been at the Prescott home the night of the crime, and that only a few hours before had been stumbling around a local bar bragging about how he was go- leaving to go bang um, his married girlfriend. From what I hear, this sort of behavior was common for Cotton, who up until this point was seen as a bit of a drunk and a known con man. So it's safe to say Cotton didn't have the best reputation and didn't have a lot of people fighting his corner when the police came knocking. Cotton, if I'm being honest, was his own worst enemy in the story. Mm. And sure enough, when detectives went to question him, was drunk as a skunk and wildly belligerent. No, Now he blames this on gr- the grieving process and looking back with all the information we have now, it probably was. But at the time, he was suspect number one and refusing to cooperate with the cops was not helping that case. He eventually became so agitated during questioning that he got himself arrested and warrants were issued for his home and car along with DNA swabs for Cotton himself. It was with these search warrants that they came across the damning evidence that would seal Cotton's faith. The blood-stained jacket that Billy had left in, a jacket that Sydney instantly identified as the jacket she saw on the killer on that fateful morning. At some stage, Billy or Stu must have planted it in his car, knowing the cops would come to investigate the lover first. With the DNA evidence and Sydney as a witness, Cotton was a dead man walking. And as much as he begged and pleaded his innocence, was condemned to die for his crimes on February 14, 1996. And so on Valentine's Day for killing his lover, Cotton Weary took his place as an innocent man on death row. So that jacket really was the crucial evidence here. 
Yeah, but Cotton's personality didn't really help. Despite what you see on TV, Cotton is actually said to be extremely unlikable. And a lot of people have said he made himself the main suspect just by being himself. But yeah, the jacket was the straw that brought the cameras back. So with Cotton's conviction, it was official. Billy and Stu had gotten away with murder. And it's quite possible that if they had been able to stop, then our story would end here. But just like an addict Joneses for a fix, the murder of Maureen Prescott only served as a gateway killing to more mayhem. And as the months passed, Billy and Stu found himself again discussing fantasies. Only problem is now they had gotten away with it once. And instead of thanking their lucky stars, they just grew more confident and decided to mark the anniversary of their first successful kill with a massacre unlike anything the small town had ever seen before. So you're saying essentially the Pringles slogan applies here. Once you pop, you just can't stop. The Pringle slogan fits many special uh-huh. scenarios. But yes, Billy and, Lu- uh, Billy and Stu popped open a can of murder and they had some serious munchies. The way they saw it, Maureen, was just the opening story to their movie. The plot, a plot point that would drive their narrative forward. To be a real slasher flick, they would need multiple victims and a solid lead girl. Or their final girl. The final girl is a trope in horror films, particularly slasher films. It refers to the last girl or woman alive to confront the killer, ostensibly the one left to tell the story. But in their movie, the final girl falls to the big bad killers and they would write the final scene, again framing an innocent man for the crimes, allowing them the freedom to plan their sequel. For Billy, there was only one girl that would fit this role perfectly, and that was his long-suffering girlfriend, Sydney. Billy had thought that killing Maureen was going to quench his thirst for vengeance, but since Maureen's death, his anger had simply been inherited by a completely unaware Sydney. The way he saw it, the apple wouldn't fall far from the tree, and that if given enough time, Sydney would turn into a lying, cheating whore just like her mother. Poor Maureen's name is getting dragged through the dirt. So uh, she had a high sex drive. Is it a crime? No, but what about poor old Neil? Oh. Oh, that's right she's married uh, she should have just told me what she was into they could have done their thing together yeah maybe I mean it's definitely a modern solution that's become more accepted in society in 2023 but this is 1996 and that generation still lived their public life on strict Christian values and hardcore Christians are known for being relationship experts <laughs> So the plan was as follows. They would wait for Neil Prescott's next business trip and they would kidnap him. They would then proceed to murder a slew of their fellow students before finally killing Sidney and Neil, framing it as a murder-suicide. With the motive being, Neil, driven mad with grief, goes on a wild killing spree before killing his daughter and finally himself to mark the first anniversary of his wife's murder at the hands of Cotton Weary. Billy and Stu would, of course, be the only survivors, shaping the narrative in their favour and making themselves the final heroes in the Woodsboro murders. They got away with it once, and it sounds like it was the same plan again, just a bit grander. I understand why they were maybe feeling a bit cocky and confident about this Mm. one. So on Wednesday 25th, 1996, a little after 10pm, Billy and Stu were ready to shoot the opening scene to their scary movie. The victims for this scene would be 17-year-old couple of Steve Orth and Casey Becker. Casey is the real target here. She was the ex-girlfriend of Stu Mocker and super popular with her peers. Stu knew that taking out Casey first would be enough to cause a huge stir around the town and Billy knew Casey sat next to Sydney in a few classes and saw it as a way to play mind games. For Billy, this all has to link and revolve around Sydney, and Stu was on board for that, but he was more interested in killing and the impact it had 
on the town as a whole as opposed to just Sydney. Makes sense. Stu doesn't really have the same revenge motivation Billy has. Seems like Billy's plight and targets were just lucky convenience to Stu. I think Casey was a Stu target though. Dumping him put her right at the top of his shit list. Yep. Typical butthurt man. Now we don't know exactly how it all went down because again most involved are long dead. What we do know or what we can piece together is all based off of their witness crimes, survivor accounts and evidence left behind at the crime scene. We know that just after 10pm Casey received a phone call from her killer. We know from Sydney's accounts that Billy and Stu like to play with their victims first, telling them that if they play a horror trivia game and get the answers right, they would let the victim go free. But if they got them wrong... They die. The only thing is, usually the final question was something to set up their attack. Asking stuff like, where am I watching you from? Or what room in your house am I calling from? This usually left the victim in shock, placing them temporarily in a frozen state of terror, allowing the killer duo to pounce and attack their prey. From what we can tell from the crime scene, at some point during that phone call, Billy or Stu took Steve, who they had taken prisoner on his arrival at the Becker home, and gutted him on the poolside patio, presumably in full view of Casey. While one was outside killing Steve, the other was inside the house getting ready to get Casey. From the mess in the house, it's clear that Casey put up quite a struggle, even breaking loose long enough to get away from her attacker, not realising just yet that a second was waiting for her outside. It was around this time that Casey's parents came home to find the front door open and the house filling up with smoke. Casey had been making popcorn when Billy and Stu attacked and it caught fire just moments beforehand. While Mrs. Becker put out the small fire, Mr. Becker went to investigate. It was he who came across the Steve's disemboweled body on the patio. Sensing he and his wife were in danger, he instructed Mrs. Becker to ring the police and go to find safety at the neighbor's house down the street. What Mrs. Becker heard when she picked up the phone was every parent's worst nightmare. Casey, still holding the cordless landline phone, was desperately trying to call out to her mother for help. And all Mrs. Becker could do was stand by and listen as Billy and Stu butchered her daughter only yards away from her. That is heartbreaking. Pretty rough, all right. And it gets worse. Because if that was the sound of every parent's worst nightmare, then what Mr. and Mrs. Becker saw next was truly a vision from hell. Upon realising the severity of the situation, Mr. Becker ushered Mrs. Becker out to the car. But as soon as she stepped outside the door, all their worst suspicions were confirmed and they found Casey hanging from a tree, her guts lying in a steaming pile by her feet, her face twisted and stuck in a look of absolute sheer terror. Jesus, these deaths are so hardcore and heavy. Like once these guys get into the killer mind frame, they turn into vicious animals. Even the posing of the body for maximum shock, just twisting the knife a little more when it comes to traumatizing Casey's poor parents. Yeah, they really wanted to make a statement with Casey's murder, and it worked. That night put Woodsboro back on the front page and put law enforcement under some real pressure. Before the death of Maureen Prescott, Woodsboro had been voted one of the safest places in America to live. Crime was petty and the violence was usually down to too much alcohol and could easily be solved with a night in the drunk tank. So it's safe to say that the brutality and frequency of the murders over the last 12 months was a lot for the Woodsboro Sheriff Department to deal with. And while Woodsboro has a top-notch policing unit now, back in 1996 it was a much smaller and more local operation that didn't have, didn't receive a whole lot of funding from the government. The Cotton case fell into their laps and in their eyes practically solved itself in what was viewed as an open and shut case. But now, with the death of the two teens on their hands and the brutality in which they were murdered, the Woodsboro Sheriff's Department had to up their game. 
and had to work quickly to solve the case before any more bodies dropped in their small, quiet town. It was for that reason that on September 26th, the day after Casey and Steve's murder, the Woodsboro Sheriff Department took over the high school with the plan to question everyone in the school with any link to the victims at all. Classmates, teachers, staff and custodians alike. Sheriff Burke was determined to leave the school with a lead or a suspect that day, but unfortunately, he had no luck. When we say all classmates are questioned, we mean all classmates, and that included Billy and Stu, each using each other as an alibi for earlier in the night and visiting their respective girlfriends later on and fudging the time a little to make it seem like they couldn't have been in two places at once. A gimmick they liked to lean on while people were still thinking the crimes were that of one man. This seemed to satisfy the sheriff, and with a school full of students and staff left, the question was happy to dismiss the pair and move on to his next interview. Oh, so close. Yeah, maybe if it was opposite there. <laughs> yeah, they could have maybe taken a little more time to kind of grill him. Good cop, bad cop. Like, I've read a bit about Deputy Dewey, and I reckon he'd pull off bad cop. No problem. We obviously been reading from different books. The name Barney Fife appears in most of the descriptions I've read of him. Are you saying this man is not a genuine hero? Or hasn't he been involved and stabbed in nearly all three, all of these cases and still always helps bring down the big bad killers? Well, at least that's what it says in the movie. You can be nice, I'll be a clumsy guy and still be a hero. And we'll definitely talk about his contributions to Ghostface Downfall a little later in the story. As Sheriff Burke and Deputy Dwight Dewey Riley interviewed the school, a media circus descended on Woodsboro like a plague of hungry locusts, starved for a scoop and ready to do anything to get it. None more prepared than the woman whose books make up the main sources for our story today. That woman was none other than the celebrity crime reporter, Gail Weathers. Much like Cotton, this story is what pushed Gail from simple reporter to celebrity and to her credit, her first book, Wrongly Accused, was the first bit of media to question the events surrounding Maureen's death. Gail was convinced of Cotton's innocence and planned to make her career off his case. So as soon as she got wind of another murder so close to Maureen's anniversary, she started to hypothesize that possibly this could be the same killer finally proving that Cotton was innocent and boosting her book sales and follow-up book sales in the process. I was watching some of Gail's old news reports on the scene at Woodsboro and I have to say, she is one brave woman. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, have you seen those suits that she used to wear? It takes balls. <laughs> Lime green suit is definitely a power move by Gail. 90s girl power all the way, man. I wonder if she was a Spice Girls fan. Ha, yeah, in her dressing room blasting, if you want to be my lawyer, <laughs> while getting pumped up. <laughs> <laughs> With Neil out of town and her mother's anniversary looming, Sydney made arrangements to stay at Tatum's house that night, not wanting to be alone in the house in the dark with all that was happening. Tatum had been set to collect Sydney at 7.30 that evening, but practice went long and she was running a little late. It was as she sat waiting for Tatum that she received her first call from the killers. Billy and Stu were using an electronic voice disguising box, making them impossible to recognize. And for the next 10 minutes or so, she, they went back and forth, trying to intimidate and scare the brave and defiant Sydney. It's believed that this attack on Sydney was played out by Billy, and at that stage, he was not quite ready to kill his final girl. There was more victims in line ahead of her, but the movie needed tension and good scares. So that's what he set out to do. He was hell-bent on terrorizing Sydney before he finished her off. And even though Sydney didn't know at the time, she was safe from death for that night at least. At this point, you may be asking, why would Billy attack Sydney and leave her alive to tell the tale? Surely now he was rumbled and it would only be a matter of time before the sheriffs would be knocking down his door. 
But you forget, this is a real-life slasher movie. And what's a slasher flick, really, without a scary masked killer? The moniker the Ghostface Killers had to come from somewhere. And it came from a cheap drugstore Halloween costume Billy and Stu used to hide their identity and instill fear in their victims. The father of that costume was nicknamed Ghostface due to its pure white colouring and its resemblance to the Edvard Munch painting The Scream. To be fair, for a cheap Halloween costume, the mask is pretty frightening and I can imagine it filled the role it was intended for. Why is it that mask killers seem almost invincible? All right, mask on, you're terrified. Mask off, and you'd probably fancy your chances against one of these little shits. Yeah, I know, right? But do you remember we talked about this before when I was wrestling? Mm. Back when I was wrestling, there was a guy. He is, um, he's still he's like the biggest promoter in Ireland, uh, Joker Prey. And oh, Joker yeah. Prey had oh, two yeah. gimmicks. One was Luther Ward, which mm. was a kind of traveler gypsy gimmick. Mm-hmm. And the other was Omen, which was a demon gimmick. And he wore a demon mask. And, and had, Omen like, was whatever. really scary. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I remember like being uh, at the show and me and Roach were opening and closing the show that night. So we were going to mm-hmm. be opening the show. But it was going to lead to the storyline to end the show. Yeah. So we were going to beat up the guys at the end of the, at just the end of our match. Mm-hmm. And then the big baby faces were going to come out and uh, save them and set up the main event for that night. Yeah. But originally, we told we were told that you know Joe was going to be playing Omen that night, and I remember being nervous that I had to wrestle Omen <laughs> that night. And then about a half an hour later, the promoter came back up to us. He was like, "Ah, uh, change of plans. He's going to be Luda Ward." And I was like, "Oh, cool. Yeah, I can be that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Bring him on." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so terrorizing Sydney, Billy chased her around the house, teasing her with his knife, like a cat playing with a mouse, before finally swatting it with its paw to devour it whole. With the doors locked and ghost-faced Billy blocking her way, Sydney was left with no other choice but to head up the stairs, essentially trapping her deeper in the house with a crazed killer on her tail. But Sydney did manage to find a little sanctuary up there. She barricaded herself into her bedroom and made contact with the police, noticing almost instantly that she was once again alone in the house and that the prospect of law enforcement had scared her would-be killer away. You'd think with an attack like that and the cops on the way, Billy would want to get as far away from the scene as possible. But the temptation of seeing the terror he caused Sydney and the joy of watching the clueless cops struggle with no solid lead was just too much for Billy. He quickly abandoned his costume and made his way for Sydney's bedroom window, ready as ever to play the role of concerned boyfriend. Idiot. But Billy was cutting it close this time and his cockiness put him in a situation that could have put his plans to an end prematurely. As soon as law enforcement arrived, the abandoned costume was found, and along with a cell phone found in Billy's possession and a close proximity to the crime scene, Billy became a suspect and was taken in by the sheriff for extra questioning. So at that stage in the 90s, we were just getting the hang of cordless landline phones and call cards. Bleepers if you were a doctor or a drug dealer. Mobile phones were only seen in American movies about super rich people, so it was rare for anyone to have one back then. So this is super suspicious. I'd never even seen a beeper in the 90s. Where we live in Ireland. I think my dad had one. I'd never seen one in my life. Call cards is all I knew, to be honest with you. My dad had one. He definitely wasn't a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. joking. Absolutely totally joking. Uh, that's why they called him Met Dealer Mike. <laughs> what? Oh my God! Now that is too far. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> oh. At the station, Sheriff Burke questioned Billy along with Hank Loomis on his whereabouts that night, and again on the night of Casey and Steve's death. 
Billy fed them the story, the same story of being with Stu earlier in Sydney that evening and that he was just called to Sydney's that night, knowing she was alone and wanting to check in on her, swearing he was innocent, claiming his phone record to clear his name. So the decision was made to hold Billy overnight until the records could be retrieved the following morning. Records came back clean. Billy's personal number was not the number used to call Sydney or Casey, even though we know Billy was the one on the other end of the line most of the time. There was also Stu's attempt to get Billy in the clear, again playing on the Ghostface killer can't be in two places at once. Ghostface Stu rang Sydney again that night, teasing her for fingering Billy when obviously the real killer was still free and ready to slash again soon. This destroyed Sydney, who on one hand hated the idea of her loving boyfriend being a psychopath, but on the other was relieved that it might already be over with Billy locked away under the watchful eyes of Woodsboro law enforcement. The killing could stop and she would be safe. But that's not how it all played out. And the next morning, Billy was back in the streets and getting ready to move his killing spree into the next gear. Dude was going into berserker mode and within the next 18 hours more bodies would fall. But what Billy didn't know then was he would also be in that pile of dead bodies. Ending his part in but really just kicking off the beginning of the ghost face saga. So you might be asking how the records came back clean. Well, while that cell phone was registered to Billy Loomis, the number it had cloned to was registered to Neil Prescott. This led Sheriff Burke to look a little deeper into Neil, discovering that he never checked into his hotel and hadn't been seen or heard from since leaving for his business trip. With all this new information pointing the finger squarely at Neil Prescott and the anniversary of his wife's murder only hours away, it felt like the investigators had their man. Now, their only problem was finding him before he could kill again. I feel bad for the cops here. They're clearly way out of their death. And to be fair, Billy and Stu, as dumb as they both were, they had a clever plan and they came damn close to fooling everyone. So it's hard to blame the cops for getting stuck down that Neil Prescott rabbit hole. I'll tell you one thing. This group of students have to be the most dedicated scholars to ever grace a high school class because even with all that happened the night before, Billy and Sydney still turned up to school the next day. I don't know how they do it in America, but over here in Ireland, that would be enough of an excuse to take a fucking month off everything. Try months. You could milk the PTSD most of the year. Seasonal PTSD that magically eases from June to September. It didn't take long for Billy and Sydney to cross paths that morning. A meeting Sydney knew was inevitable and a meeting where she would have to swallow her pride and admit she had been wrong. But even then, Sydney says she could feel an uneasiness inside her. Her body was instinctively trying to warn her, but after being stung once with the embarrassment of wrongly accusing her boyfriend and questions being asked in regards to Cotton's guilt, she decided to ignore it and put it down to bad nerves because of the ongoing situation. Those nerves would be tested again minutes later when another ghost face would launch a brief attack on her in the school bathroom. Now, Sydney herself has said that this attack could have been another student playing a prank. <laughs> Again, this costume was wildly available and cheap. So since the original murder started, every asshole teen in town had purchased a fall or death costume. Littering the school halls and cosplay killers just trying to get a laugh out of a very dire situation. The truth is, we just don't know for sure. But we do know that Stu was stalking the halls around the same time, and less than an hour later, he would take his next victim. If he was around stalking a victim, then chances are it was him. As shitty as it is to dress up in the costume, it's a bit of a stretch to then attack the main victim in the story. Considering he was on his way to kill and was in a bathroom stall, do you think she interrupted him getting changed into the costume and he just saw an opportunity to cause some mayhem? Well, a loony too, like Stu, wasn't going to be able to help himself in that situation, was he? (laughs) 
Because of the severity of the situation and with no real end in sight, the school was forced to cancel classes and a curfew was put in place in the town. Again, due to the lack of living witnesses, we don't know exactly how it all played out. But at some stage after classes cut out, Stu lived out every angry schoolboy's dream and stabbed his principal to death. And just like Casey, he hung Principal Arthur Himbury from the f- football field goalpost. Guts hanging out like a calling card for the whole student body to bear witness to. This guy's like a ghost face ninja. Like, how is he getting away with all these elaborate displays? Look, that's it. Just look. Plus, I suppose if you're called Ghostface, you've got to have some sort of a ghostly kind of thing about Presence. you that you can whoosh in and whoosh on. I can imagine him tiptoeing around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pure Scooby Doo. Yeah, and all the, the noises and all. Yeah. Seems like Stu was in the mood to celebrate because after the murder of Principal Himbury, Stu spread word around that he was holding a curfew party at his place. His parents were out of town and school was out. The perfect setup for a major rager. Or was it the perfect setting for the final scenes of his movie? It seemed the reels were about to run out and it was time for the killers to reveal themselves and to put the end of their plan into action. And that's exactly what would happen next. Ooh, exciting. We're in the endgame. And so it was set. Party at Stu's house. A chance for all five friends to have some fun and unwind. To forget about the violence plaguing them and their peers for just a few hours. You say five. So that's Billy, Stu, Sidney, Tatum. And who am I leaving out? You're leaving out possibly the best character in this story. And possibly a bigger horror nerd than Billy and Stu combined. The right kind of horror nerd. The type who respects the gore but understands the story is just that. A story designed to entertain. That man is the highly strung but fun-loving nerd, Randy Meeks. Randy was a close friend of Sydney's from a young age, and through her relationship with Billy, ended up as the fifth wheel in the group. Although he hoped to eventually switch roles with Billy, he had a huge crush on Sydney. Randy worked in a local video store, a job he had been fired and rehired from at least twice. And it was here witnesses remember seeing Billy confront Randy on the day of the massacre. You see, Randy, using slasher movie logic, surmised that Mr. Prescott was only a red herring. He was too obvious and just a prop to distract the audience, allowing the true killer to move freely away from police suspicion. He came to the conclusion that the only person that could be under the mask was Billy, the jealous sex-starved boyfriend. Only problem was he was telling all this to Stu, and when Billy found out, he decided he needed to put a stop to it. Randy himself said later that the fear he felt that day as Billy and Stu menacingly taunted him in front of the staff and customers in the store should have made it obvious that they were behind everything. But they were all friends. They always fucked around like this. And by the time the confrontation was over, that's just what it seemed like. Three guy friends busting each other's balls. But I think at that stage, Randy was left with with an uneasiness similar to that of Sydney earlier after Billy got cleared by the police. It couldn't really be them, could it? So red flags flying everywhere around these two guys. Yeah, no one suspected Stu at all. In fact, the only one to suggest he could be the killer was Billy when he was taking the piss in front of their other friends. And Billy had been cleared by police, so he was out of the running in the eyes of the public. Even if he did scream psycho at everything he did, he was still seen to have been proven innocent to the Woodsboro locals. The reason I say Randy is one of the best characters we have in this story is simple. We have so much footage from that night of the murder, from the night of the murders, that nearly all stars randy when i say we have a lot of footage i mean like we have a lot of footage in fact 90 percent of the party is on tape 
You see, when Deputy Dewey Riley heard about the party from his little sister Tatum, he decided he would go along and sit outside in the police car to deter any would-be killer and to keep an eye out for Neil Prescott, thinking that if he was the true killer, then he might follow his daughter and her friends to this party. To be fair to Deputy Dewey, as far as cops go, he sounds like he was a pretty cool guy. Uh, He could have come up, sirens blasting, sending all the kids home. There was a curfew in effect. But Dewey, not wanting to be a party pooper, decided to just stay on surveillance. Thing is, though, Dewey had struck up a bit of a friendship with Gail Weathers. And Gail, seeing Dewey as a lovable but soft touch, decided to stay close to him. Giving her a straight line to the police investigation and first dibs on breaking news and information. So it wasn't long after Dewey dropped the girls to the party that Gail's news van pulled up to the mocker home. And it didn't take long after that for her to find a reason to get into the house for a snoop around. Using Dewey and her TV celebrity status, she made her way into the party and while the starstruck teens watched her in awe, slipped a small spy camera into the living room, giving us full view and audio that shows us all just how this evening really played out. Can we use any of that footage here? Uh, maybe. you got to remember this is 90s VHS video quality. The sound doesn't translate over very well and being a podcast, that's kind of important. Okay. So from here on out, there is only really one more incident that we have no witnesses to, and that's the murder of Tatum Riley. At some stage over the evening, Tatum went to the garage to get a beer from an old fridge and just didn't come back. Her body was later found by Sydney and then again by Randy, electrocuted and with her skull crushed, hanging from a cat flap in the open garage door. Investigators eventually came to the conclusion that in an attempt to flee from the ghost-faced Billy, she tried to escape through the flap, getting stuck in the process. And Billy, being more about the scare than he was about blood and guts, decided to take the easy option, simply opening the garage door, killing Tatum without even getting his hands dirty. We know this one was Billy because Stu was inside playing horse at the party at this time. Mm. So Tatum's death was just the beginning of the horror that would run wild through the mocker house that night. And it wasn't long before Billy and Stu's endgame would be in full swing. Next step was to lead Deputy Dewey to Neil's car, which they had dumped in a nearby wooded area just before calling in a tip to the Sheriff's Department. They would then have to get their final girl alone so they could direct the final scene in their sick movie fantasy. They really had all the little details in place. Thinking to plant Neil's car in the woods by the house, even being confident enough in their timing to get the job done before the police showed up. Like, that all took serious planning and perfect execution. Nice choice of words. (laughs) Not long after killing Tatum, Billy arrived late at the party, and at this point, news came in that Principal Himbury's body had been found, clearing the curious students out of the mocker home and back to Woodsboro High in hopes of catching a glimpse of their principal's mutilated corpse. The only people left behind were Billy Stu, Randy, Sidney, Gail, Dewey, and Gail's cameraman, Kenny. Gail and Dewey finding the car meant it was time for their plan to get moving. But first, Billy had one more itch he needed to scratch the perfect little detail to truly solidify their slasher theme and to confirm that if you break the rules in horror movies, then the repercussion would almost always be your death. 
Billy was going to try once more to romance Sydney. One more shot before he finished her. So under the guise of talking about their relationship, Billy and Sydney went to the master bedroom in the mocker home and discussed their recent issues. It was here Sydney said the constant gaslighting from Billy had finally got to her, and convinced she was being frigid and cold towards him, she decided to finally give Billy what he wanted, and in doing so sealed her fate in the eyes of the killer. I already told you, follow Jesus. He's the true savior from Ghostface. Close your legs and open a book. The good book. Sarcasm? Yeah, fucking right sarcasm. Fuck those incel assholes. (laughs) You see, most horror slasher movies are made up of a few basic rules. The three most important being, you may not survive the movie if you have sex. You may not survive the movie if you drink or do drugs. And you may not survive the movie if you say, I'll be right back. Hello, or who's there? So basically, don't have fun. Pretty much. I mean, I love a good, hello, who's there? I'll be right back. A bad girl at heart. (laughs) Leaving Randy alone watching movies downstairs, Billy and Stu moved on with their plan. Waiting until after Billy had finished knocking boots with Sydney, Ghostface Stu entered the room attacking the couple and stabbing Billy multiple times right in front of a terrified and shocked Sydney. It's all bullshit. A phony decoy to put Sydney off the scent. Clever positioning and corn syrup really putting their movie knowledge to practice. So Sydney thought she was watching Billy get stabbed, but really he was unharmed. Leaving Billy for dead and in an attempt to save herself, Sydney took off leading Ghostface Stew on a chase scene worthy of a place in any scary movie. Running through almost every room in the first floor of the house, Sydney found herself once again stuck with no other option but to go up. And with Ghostface Stew hot in her heels, Sydney climbed through an attic window to the roof. It was here while trying to fight off Stu, Sydney lost her footing, falling from the roof only to be saved by Mr. Mocker's fishing boat parked in the driveway below her. It was at this point that Sydney looked up to find the body of her best friend hanging lifeless from the garage door. Randy, hearing all the noise, would find Tatum directly after this, just missing Sydney as she ran to find safety. That's a lot to process. You justify death falling from a roof. Blind luck that the boat is where it is. You look up and there's your best friend hanging in the air with her head crushed. That's a nightmare. Sydney, snapping back to reality and realising she still had to get herself to safety, spotted Gail's news van. It was here she found cameraman Kenny, who had been watching the stream from the spy camera in the house. You see, the thing about this camera was it had a short delay and it lagged by 30 seconds or so. I mean, this was 1986, so this tech was still pretty good for its time. Sydney and Kenny watched in horror as Ghostface Sue stalked an unaware Randy, stopping just short of killing him as he had heard Sydney call for help out side and decided to go deal with the more pressing matter first again i remind you there's a 30 second delay this meant that by the time they realized that Stu was on his way he was already there and for supposedly the second time that night he killed the man right in front of sydney slicing kenny brown from ear to ear and letting him bleed out right there on the ground oh my god they killed kenny you bastards <laughs> before we get on with it there's a theory right mm-hmm. that um and it's something that we're going to come across again when we talk about the fourth massacre that happened in 2011. There's a theory that Stu was actually pretty friendly with Randy. Randy and Stu were both like the real, real. I mean, Billy was a bit bit more cooler than the, the yeah. two of them. And the two of them were kind of more movie geek nerds and would have geeked out a lot together and hung yeah. out a lot together and watched movies a lot together. Yeah. There is a theory that Stu never really wanted to kill Randy. 
that uh, when you see, because there, there, obviously we have this video footage. Mm-hmm. We see in the video footage Stu coming up behind Randy with the knife. Yeah. But he hesitates. It's the only time you hear of a ghost face hesitating. He's standing over him. It's almost like he stops to think and try and decide whether he's going to do this or not. And as soon as he hears the noise yeah. of Sydney outside, he makes the, the decision to leave. to leave Randy and to go outside. Yeah. And, I mean, it wouldn't have taken him two seconds to drive the knife into Randy, Randy and then two run or three times and then run outside to deal with Sydney. Yeah. But he made the decision right there and then it was almost like, oh, I get all like the like, jail yeah. free card yeah. and he got away from him. And I mean, even later we'll see again, they're both in a position to, where they're both in the same place together, kind mm. of screaming, your goal straight, no, your goal straight. <laughs> like, yeah. But they, he never attacks him. So, yeah, sure. In the midst of all this chaos, Dewey and Gail returned to the house looking for Neil Prescott. Dewey went inside to investigate while Gail ran to the news van to call the sheriff for help and report the finding of Neil's car. It was here she found the lifeless body of her cameraman. Panicked, she climbed into the van in search of a phone. She was then startled by Randy, who she repeatedly hit with that phone. At this point, Gail had had enough. She'd started the van and took off to get help, only to suddenly be met with a terrified Sydney standing lost in the middle of the road. This caused Gail to swerve off the road and into a tree. Stu later that night he had went to finish her off after but she looked dead enough to him so he decided not to waste time and with the possibility of a cop showing up soon he just moved on the fact that you point out the dude didn't bother going to finish her off tells me this comes back to bite him in the ass sometime in the near future sure does after seeing Gail crash, Sydney ran back towards the house, screaming for Dewey for help. Help he wouldn't be able to give, because when Sydney reached the house, she found Dewey stumbling from the front door with a knife buried deep in his back. Oh, poor Dewey. Sydney was lost. She had nowhere left to turn and didn't know who she could trust. As she stood there, most definitely in a deep state of shock, Randy and Stu, now out of costume, came back on the scene, both screaming accusations at each other. How could she know? Like, it could be either of them or both of them, for all she knows. I just shoot them both in the leg and wait for the cops to figure out. Like, Randy's a horror nerd, but I think he'd respect the logic. Sydney pulled herself together long enough to grab Dewey's sidearm, keeping it firmly pointed in their direction and keeping Stu sedated long enough for her to get back inside the house for a brief moment of relief. In the heat of the moment, Sydney couldn't be sure which of the two to believe. But if she had been able to get a second to think, she might have remembered that only a few minutes earlier she had watched as Ghostface Stu had been lurking behind Randy, knife out and ready to strike. But the adrenaline, the confusion and the shock had obviously wiped this from her mind momentarily. Shit, I even forgot about that and we just spoke about it. So you could get how Sydney probably wouldn't remember either. Considering everything that's happened and the fact that directly after seeing the Randy Ghostface Stu footage, she witnessed Kenny's murder. Yeah, super traumatic stuff. Like, There's no way she's thinking straight. And the real traumatic stuff is still to come. This is where the real fun part happens. Well, at least for us, it definitely wasn't fun for the rest of them involved. As Sydney stood there, her mind racing, trying to put the pieces together, the supposedly stabbed Billy stumbled down the stairs and into her waiting arms. Billy then convinced her to give him the gun and let Randy into the house, confirming Stu to be a killer along with himself. Yeah, doesn't sound too good for Randy. No, as soon as Billy had the gun, he shot Randy, revealing himself to Sydney as the killer. Luckily, he only got Randy in the shoulder, and although his part in this story ends here, he lives on to fight another day and will feature some more in episode two. Awesome. I like Randy. 
If you like Randy, why would you be happy that he features in another massacre? Surely you'd prefer that he, you know, settled down, had a family, lived happily ever after. Actually, yeah, that's what I want. Is that what happened to him in the end? Josh? Yeah. <laughs> With Randy Dawn and Stu creeping up behind her, Sydney's situation looked truly dire. And as if things weren't bad enough for the unwilling final girl, she had to listen to these two psychos as they reveal their whole master plan like two dopey bomb villains. She listened in shock as Billy revealed that not only were they the ones responsible for the current string of murders, but it had been them that had killed her mother one year earlier. How could you ever trust another human being again? And your mother and all your friends are dead and your boyfriend is responsible. What a mindfuck. Yeah, and you, the man you just literally gave your virginity to turns into a monster almost instantly after the deed is done. Mm, probably not the best first experience. Like, I don't envy her next boyfriend. <laughs> Funny you say that. But before you ask, next episode. Oy. Neil, who had been tied up and gagged on the residence that whole night, was then brought out for the final scene. It was here that Billy and Stu made their fatal mistake. You see, the two knew they couldn't be the only unharmed survivors at the party. It would draw way too much suspicion. So they worked out the safest places to stab and they took it in turns maiming each other for an alibi. The idiots did all this before killing Sydney and Neil. I mean, don't talk about giving your opponent the upper hand. This is insane. It can't be real. Um, <coughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, as this all went on, Gail, still alive but fairly beat up, managed to make her way back to the house, hearing the mad ravings of Billy and Stu as she entered. She noticed the gun sitting out on the counter right by the kitchen door and took her chance. Unfortunately for her, in all the excitement of getting one up in the killers, she forgot to check the safety, allowing Billy to incapacitate her and again regain control of the gun. But Gail's efforts were not a total waste. The distraction she caused allowed Sydney and Neil a chance to hide. And from that hiding place, Sydney was able to contact the sheriff's department, giving them her location and the true identity of the ghost face killers. With all lost, Billy flew into a rage, tearing through the house searching for Sydney. If he was going down, he was going to take her with him. While Billy searched Stu, weak with blood loss from the alibi stabbing, sunk into denial and began sobbing like a child. Oh, now I feel bad for the killer again. Like, I just want to give him a hug. If you want to be covered in blood and there's always a chance that he'll decide to get one more notch in his belt and kill you while you're close to the uh, you know. Yeah, fuck him. true process of elimination Billy narrowed it in on the closet under the stairs exactly the place Sydney had been hiding in inside Sydney had found one of the ghost face masks and an eventual twist of fate exploded from the closet wearing it stabbing Billy twice in the chest with the top of an umbrella then without a second to spare Sydney had Stu to deal with they wrestled around for a minute or two before Sydney could get the better of him there she found herself right by the living room TV with Stu laid out on the floor in front of her she finally incapacitated Stu through electrocution by dropping the TV directly on his head. The end. Not the end. Billy wasn't done yet, and with one last ounce of energy, he wrestled Sydney to the ground, raising his knife over his head, and bang! She didn't make the same mistake twice, and Gail turned off the safety, landing a shot directly into Billy's chest before he could bring the knife down on Sydney. And if that wasn't enough to seal the deal, Sidney Prescott put a bullet square between Billy's eyes, officially putting an end to the, to the run of the OG killers Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. Wow, what a story. A clever plan, nearly perfect, but they would never have gotten away with that. What makes you say that? Gail's camera. Even if they had killed Sidney and Neil, 
and convinced the cops that they were victims, the cops would have eventually came across the camera and they would have been caught. True, but they would have probably had time to set the scene and get rid of the camera before anyone got there. If they had known the camera was there at all, like it was a spy cam. No one but Gail, Kenny and Sydney knew it was there. I think that's evident from the fact that they stabbed each other before Sydney and Neil. They were confident that the scene was already set. They surely knew that by the time they took care of the Prescotts, all they'd have the energy to do is hit the ground and wait for the cops and paramedics to arrive. Shit, I think you're right. Regardless of how the ending went, Billy and Stu would have been caught and would either be on death row right now or dead by lethal injection. Either way, the story of the OG killers is over, but Ghostface lives on. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month. Along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers. Or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. And start listening now. So when we last left Woodsboro, survivors had just put a bullet in the head of OG killer Billy Loomis and a TV on the head of Stu Mocker, putting an end to their real-life slasher nightmare once and for all. Or so they thought. See, that's the fucked up thing when it comes to Ghostface. The killer under the mask may die, but just like a slasher movie monster, Ghostface lives on and keeps coming back time and time again. And what our survivors didn't know then was that Billy and Stu had started a domino effect that would see their real-life horror movie return again and again as budding serial killers and slasher movie junkies set out to make sequel after sequel in their honour. It's like we said in the last episode, this all becomes almost cult-like with this weird membership limit. And it seems like the Ghostface moniker has a waiting list. As soon as one or two falls, there's another to take their place. Fucking Buffy the Vampire Slayer rules. <laughs> Remember, like she like dies for a few minutes in the first season and that leads to a new Slayer being called. And it's like that, but with crazy serial killers. Oh, I remember the other serial killer. Was that, that was fair. Not serial killer. <laughs> vampire <laughs> Where are we going with this guy? <laughs> vampire Slayer. Slayer. Fate made me feel funny when I was small. Fate's <laughs> a bit of a bitch. Uh-huh. Fate's a bit of a bitch. She was a bit of a hot bitch. Oh, I understand she was attractive, but I didn't realise. I liked her the first time I watched it, but I didn't realise how kind of a bit of bitchy she was. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so, like, the current killer dies and the Ghostface Council then calls on the next two killers to take their place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Ghostface Council could open a whole other can of worms for us here, so let's just shelf that, but for now... Because if theories are correct about what's going on currently with most of the recent Ghostface cases, could be on to something. Yeah, fuck yeah, I am. Detective Amy Rose reporting for duty. Yeah, yourself and Dewey who make a great buddy conspiracy cop movie. I would like to be friends with Dewey. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I joke about these massacres being honor killings to the OG killers, really they're honor killings to the stab movie franchise. And even then that trend really doesn't start until later. And when it comes to the first three massacres, revenge really is the main motive for most of the killers. The main bad guys always seem to take on Billy's lead in being more tunnel vision revenge killers. But when it comes to the case of Windsor College of the Windsor College Massacre, there was a killer amongst the Woodsboro survivors who took after Stu and just wanted to be the horror movie monster. And his name was Mickey Altieri, a budding serial killer and wannabe Tarantino filmmaker found online and commissioned to come to Ohio and create a sequel to Billy and Stu's movie. Commissioned? You mean like someone hired him like a hitman? Sort of. From what we know of Mickey, he may have had a few bodies under his belt before taking the mantle as Ghostface. He was pitched a story and given the finance to create his masterpiece with a promise of all the glory. Mickey would have have been a serial killer regardless of Ghostface. This way, he just fed his movie maker ego as well as getting to be a prolific killer. Plus, the movie maker and him couldn't pass up the publicity and media attention attached to the mask. He knew this was a way to leave his mark on history and he was right because over 20 years later, we're still here talking about him well what glory is in it for him i mean if his plans had been successful then no one would have ever known that it was him is it just a self-satisfaction thing where he's happy just knowing he's getting one up on everyone but that's the thing mickey didn't want to get away with it mickey fully intended on being caught in fact he was mainly doing the killing so he could get to the trial where he could pull out his big performance and blame the movies he loves so much for his wild acts of violence i think mickey had uh aspirations of being like ted bundy in the courtroom mm. do you know yeah so, uh, see, Mickey played a plan to go down like Dahmer, Bundy, or Gacy before him. He wanted to be the face that went with the mask. He wanted to be the new Billy Loomis. But to do that, he had to be caught. It was always a part of the plan, for him at least. His accomplice had other ideas, and she would be the true mastermind of this killing spree. Ooh, 90s girl power in action. She is someone we, who we know well. Someone who at the time was the innocent catalyst for Billy and Stu's attacks. Yes, it's time for the return of everyone's favorite mom. Nancy Loomis. Nancy, while on the lam from her family, found out about Billy through the media after the massacre was over. Needless to say, she was heartbroken at the news of the death of her baby boy, Billy. And like Billy, her grief got misdirected and led to fatal violence, adding eight more bodies to the long list of ghost-faced victims. You see, instead of dealing with her grief and guilt like a normal person in therapy or taking time to herself to figure out her feelings, something she was obviously very good at, Nancy went seeking vengeance and her crosshairs were set directly on her son's killer, the ever-resilient final girl, Sydney Prescott. Sydney had actually been doing all right for herself since the massacre in 1996, getting the results she needed in her final exams to guarantee her a spot in the course of her choice, that being theatre and drama at Windsor College in Ohio. Randy also got a spot in this college studying his lifelong passion of film. Yeah, things were going all right for our Woodsboro survivors, especially one Gail Weathers. See, Gail had written a book, the book we referenced in episode one, as one of our main sources for the original massacre, The Woodsboro Murders. This book skyrocketed Gail from a lowly reporter to journalist superstar overnight. Gail was a bona fide celebrity superstar, and because of this, she wasn't going to miss out on an opportunity to, pa- to be part of the sequel. And as soon as the bodies started dropping in Ohio, she was on the road, camera in tow, ready to battle Ghostface again in a quest for even more fame and more recognition. To be fair, though, it is her job, and it's not like she's there to cause any trouble. She's usually instrumental in taking down the killers. 
True, and I've said it before, she is a very, very good investigative reporter, but it's said that in recent years, even Gail herself has shown signs of remorse for actions that have for the actions that have followed her book releases. Not enough to stop writing them, though. No, it didn't take her long to cash in on the 2022 killings, but requel terror returns to Woodsboro, even after initially promising to let the 2022 killers die in anim- anonymity in interviews. Just Gail being Gail. Like, if she didn't write it, somebody else would have, I suppose. Just better to have her first-hand account. Better for us and the show. Yep, because thanks to Gail and Sydney, we do have first-hand accounts of this massacre with today's main sources, Out of Darkness and College Terror, the Woodsboro Horror continues. Along with the documentary Scream 2 by filmmakers Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, it would have been great to hear the killer side of the story, but just like Billy's, Nancy and Mickey's tale ends with a bullet between the eyes. So when it comes to where Nancy was after she abandoned Billy or Mickey's background, our information is very limited, with each killer providing a brief statement for their motive just before their deaths and living a low-key life beforehand to keep the attention off them. What we do know is that this was all Nancy's plan and that's that in some time in 1997, she came across Mickey on a serial killer chat room, grooming him over the next few months while setting up her own cover story, putting the wheels in motion for her perfect revenge. Chat rooms in 97. I didn't think they would have even been a thing then. I'm not even too sure I knew the internet existed back then. The web was a very different place back in its infancy. It was the Wild West. If you knew how to use it in the right places to look, you could find anything. The dark web isn't a new invention. Yeah, what I've heard about the dark and deep web though makes my skin crawl, so let's just <laughs> keep going. I would have known there was some sort of chat rooms alright in the ni- in ninety seven. I remember seeing Shawn Michaels look awkwardly trying to uh Talk type to people. back <laughs> on uh, a big ass computer because they used to show it like on raw right on the pay per views. Mm-hmm. They'd show like that the wrestlers were going back and AOL would have uh, probably been sponsoring them yeah. to do it. And you'd see the wrestlers after their matches or before their matches going back and they'd be in front of the computer answering the questions. It would make you think the wrestler was messaging them. No, okay. Obviously, they would have had other people probably messaging them. the messages. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, I just have an image of him awkwardly doing the whole, you know, um, one finger at a time typing. Oh, <laughs> so. I'm kind of sta- squinting at the screen trying to work <laughs> out. He looked like an old man, even though he's in his fucking 20s at the time. <laughs> Acquiring Mickey was only step one in Nancy's plan. Step two was a little more complicated, but Nancy's secondary revenge target will provide her with the inspiration for the perfect cover. You see, Nancy didn't just blame Sydney for Billy's death. No, she saw all four of the survivors as guilty parties to her son's demise, with a higher percentage of the blame directed towards the women. It was for this reason that Nancy decided to use the pl- hiding in plain sight method, following Gail's career post at Woodsboro in 1996 and taking up a new identity as a local reporter, taking on the new moniker of Debbie Salt. So she was planning on getting close to Gail. Uh, I know that they never met, but surely while putting her book together, she would have seen pictures of Nancy or something. So, like, wouldn't Gail have recognized her? The power of a makeover. A little weight loss, a little surgery, and Nancy was just different enough that if you hadn't met her before in real life, you would have never have clicked that she was also Debbie Salt. Mm, okay. As Debbie, Nancy followed Gail on her speaking tour of her uh, for her book promotion, studying her and all her little details, learning what she would need to make herself blend in as the inevitable media circus hit Windsor College after the first few bodies dropped. I'm not sure how Nancy was paying for everything. I mean, the Loomises were well enough off. Maybe she was still, you know, she still had some access to the family account. Maybe she was receiving an allowance from Hank to prevent a messy divorce. But either way, Nancy was able to fund the plastic surgery, Mickey's college tuition and follow Gail's book tour without any sign of employment. Well, she couldn't hold down a job, really. I mean, 
where would she find the time for employment that would give her the freedom to plan her revenge and follow Gail around the country? It's a pretty common thing with serial killers to hold on a regular job and even live regular private lives outside of what they're doing. I mean, you look at, we've looked at the BTK killer, Dennis mm. Rader. He worked like a regular nine to five. He yeah. was a scout leader. He had a high position in the church. He was described by his kids as a great and attentive dad. He killed... 10 people over 30, uh, 30 year period. He even killed a whole family for his first kill, kids and all. Yet another thing that makes my skin crawl, that man is absolutely disgusting. Now we covered him on Real Monsters on Patreon and it's a great episode and a really interesting story but he is a rotten, evil man. Or was, is he still alive? He was. Yeah, he's still alive. They, they only released a um, recent mug, he had a new mug shot like literally two weeks ago. Mm. He looks way older now. Like, you know, had proper sunken fucking eyes, old man kind of unkempt looking. Uh, I hate uh, that he gets the publicity that he gets. Like, you know that's all he wants. I've heard you say it a few times now, but he definitely got himself caught on purpose so that he could revel in being the notorious BTK in retirement. And apparently he was a bit like, was he a bit of a, he was, he was a, definitely a serial killer fanboy, but there's so many fucking, uh, when you're looking at, We've looked at him and Bundy and mm. all lately. Mm. Very similar. Yeah. Down to like, uh, Bundy was heavily involved with the church. I think he got involved with the Boy Scouts at some point. Mm. I mean, he definitely was taking inspiration from Bundy at the time. Yeah. I, people know he was following the case and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was a bad egg, all right. Speaking of bad eggs, Nancy finally had her plan all mapped out and in motion. Mickey was under her thumb and her new identity was locked in. She knew the who and the where. All she was looking for now was the when. And Gail's never-ending quest for fame would provide her with the perfect opportunity to get her mother ball rolling. Gail's book, The Woodsboro Murders, had been made into a movie, much to Nancy's dismay. And Nancy couldn't let opening night pass without honoring her baby boy, Billy. So on December 12th, 1987, a special preview showing of the movie stab nancy and mickey would shoot their opening active in front of a live audience as casey becker played by heather graham lost her life to ghostface one more time for the big screen i loved heather graham and austin powers well what was that you said about a live audience exactly what i said this opening kill was going to be live a stage performance a bonus live set for the bur- uh, bloodthirsty slasher fans who came out for opening night so no one in the cinema spotted the guy in a ghostface costume rocking around an opening night of a film Based on the Ghostface Killers. To promote the movie on opening night, free Ghostface costumes were handed out to moviegoers. So no, no one spotted the real Ghostface lurking amongst a hundred or so other Ghostface running wild around the cinema that night. Who does that? I mean, you don't see them offering free face paint at the premiere of Gacy back in 2003. (laughs) I know. You couldn't get away with that now. I mean, you saw all the grief Netflix got for the Dahmer series saying that they were glorifying and making a sympathetic character. Imagine the uproar now if you tried this. What would you hand out for a Dahmer premiere? A glasses? Huh? Blonde wig? Glasses? <laughs> Regular food sh- that is made look like human, uh, I would assume. No, Twitter <laughs> would massacre you. <laughs> oh, X would massacre you. I can't get used to that. Ah, people are still calling it Twitter. Fuck them. Or Huh? RT are calling it X. It was so busy. I was watching um, a news piece and they were like, X. Like, really yeah. Nice. yeah. I talk a lot of shit about him and now I'm starting to realize at some point I did say that he could possibly be an alien and become our alien overlord. If that's the case, Elon, I'm only joking and, and I am ready to accept your rule of the planet. <laughs> Please don't enslave us. I'm going to remain on the fence about that one. <laughs> 
I feel I need to make a small correction here. We both described Mickey as lurking around the cinema as if he was hiding in the shadows. But from CCTV footage at the night of the show, Mickey walked tall and confidently into his mission, murdering Phil Stevens and Maureen Evans in front of a room full of people, then simply walking back out the front door with no witnesses to the murder and no indication of a motive. So over 100 people saw it happen, but there are no witnesses. I don't want to come across as racist, but the last time I heard the name Altieri, it was on The Sopranos. Did Mickey send some goons to help all these people for snitching on him? Nope, genuinely no one saw it happen. Have you ever been to a stab movie in the cinema? It's a very interactive experience. Although the source material is from true, brutal and dark events, the movie is extremely campy and has developed a cult following. Stab fans will generally talk back to the on-screen characters, scream warnings at the would-be victims, quote dialogue as it happens, and even throw stuff at the screen. Like the room by Tommy Wiseau. Exactly. Yeah. So on, the night, on that night, Windsor College seniors Maureen Evans and Phil Stevens were at the Rialto Theatre in Ohio for the midnight preview of Stab, written by Will Kennison, directed by Robert Rodriguez and released through Sunrise Studios. Hank Loomis used to work there. I, everything in this story seems to link together. It's so strange. Oh, you have no idea. Huh. After taking their seats, Phil left Maureen to take a pre-movie whiz. He was later found to have been stabbed in the ear through a toilet cubicle wall. How long? was the knife what do you mean uh, like how could the knife break through the wall and reach his head i mean what was he doing was he trying to listen to people just listen in on the person pooping next to him maybe he went to the bathroom looking for a glory <laughs> hole someone should tell him he's doing it wrong if he's sticking his ear to the hole <laughs> how or why phil was listening to his neighboring pooper is unknown what we do know though is that once mickey was confident that he had phil's attention he drove the knife with extreme force through the wooden partition and straight into the side of phil's head killing him almost instantly he then stole phil's jacket and made his way back into the screening room taking a seat next to the unsuspecting maureen evans mickey wearing phil's jacket and a ghost face mask cuddled into maureen and as she sat there covering her eyes to hide away from Casey's big death scene. Ghostface Mickey struck and slipped his knife into her guts as the audience howled and screamed at the big screen. From here Maureen stumbled out into the sea of people wearing the iconic mask, making it impossible for her to keep track of her attacker. Mickey then got in close to Maureen landing three more stabs to her back. I have two questions. Hmm? First question. Do you think that Maureen was killed specifically for her name to be the first kill? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's only after clicking with me. Yeah, well, yeah, I can explain that a little later. Okay. But yeah, I'll explain as we go on there. Okay. Secondly, why didn't anyone help her? Well, they thought it was part of the show. And this is from the night said that they honestly thought it was just another gimmicky promo. Okay. So my studios went hard on the promo tactics and people didn't realize that what they were seeing was real until it was too late. Witnesses say Maureen stumbled onto a small stage in front of the projection screen, covered in blood, with one hand holding her stomach together and the other reaching out to the crowd, helplessly pleading for help from the captivated audience. Then just as it all started to get real for the onlookers, Maureen, with her final breath, left out a blood-curdling scream before collapsing into a pool of her own blood. The last thing she saw was over a hundred ghostwists unmasked to watch as she became just another casualty to the curse of Woodsboro. And Mickey just strolled off home like nothing happened. Pretty much. Uh, were both of them dead though? How do we know who killed them? Did they confess to each separate murder before they died? I mean, how can we tell? Honestly, it's mostly guesswork, like where each of them were when the killing happened. But it's pretty widely accepted that nine times out of ten, Mickey was the one under the mask, with Nancy playing more of a background role. Pushing all the pieces into place, making the phone calls, planning and making sure Billy got the job done right. In fact, out of the Windsor College victims, authorities believe Nancy actually only committed one murder by her own hand. But man, Nancy's one stings more than all the Mickeys put together. That's not to be disrespectful of other victims, 
it sucks this happened to any of them, but Nancy's attack hits close to home, so just prepare yourself is all I'm saying. Oh, God. Okay. So all this went down at 10.50, or t- sorry, 12.15 Thursday night, Friday morning. What a way to start your day. It's not only how they plan to start the day, it's also how they plan to end it. But now it was time to bring it a little closer to home. And with the media circus descending on Windsor College, Nancy decided it was time for Debbie Salt to make an appearance. So she's here to get close to Gail, right? Like keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much. While Nancy might not be the one plunging the knife into people, she got just as much of a rush leading these people to their inevitable death. So she wanted to get close enough to Gail so she could drop the little breadcrumbs for her to follow. But at the end of the trail, it's Mickey and he's here to kill you. And that's exactly what she did. She led Gail along by being the over-enthusiastic Gail Weathers wannabe super fan. Annoying enough to not be on Gail's killer radar, but with enough good lead tips to be worth keeping close by. Originally, the movie murders were seen as an isolated event. Police tried to pass it off as an overzealous fan who lost the run of himself. They assured the public that the killer would be in custody soon and told everyone there was no reason to worry. Less than 22 hours later, Nancy and Mickey would prove this wrong and let the world know once and for all that Ghostface was back. And if it was stab they wanted, then it was stab they would get up close and personal. This time, Mickey knew the perfect place to strike. You see, that night, the Omega Beta Zeta sorority were holding their co-sponsored acid rain mixer with the Pi Gamma Alpha fraternity at their frat house on Windsor College campus. Mickey knew that it was the Omega Beta Zeta policy to always have one sister stay sober on the night of big events. Every sister had to take a turn, meaning while the acid rain mixer raged on, one sorority sister would stay behind at the house in case of any drunk sisters that would need help or assistance on that night. That night, the job fell to C.C. Cooper, an 18-year-old film student who shared classes with both Randy and Mickey in Windsor College. Not a lot is known about how it all went down. All we know is there was a chase, a struggle, judging by the state of the house. And Cece, just like Sydney before her, found herself with no option but to run up the stairs to safety. Mickey then chased her to a balcony where Cece was trapped. He then stabbed her once and pushed her from the third story balcony to her death. Three murders in less than 24 hours. Like, these two are no joke. Okay, so... Little sidebar here. You were asking about was Maureen Evans picked because of her name. Mm. She was. Mm. Maureen Evans Mm -hmm. being the first victim, Maureen Prescott. Mm -hmm. Phil Stevens, first and second victim, Stephen Orth. Mm. Third victim, Cece Cooper, real name, Casey. Oh, Casey Becker. Casey Becker. So. At this point, they would probably start looking around for who was the next one to go. And after CC, was it Principal Henry? So Arthur Hembry would be the next name they were looking for. But that didn't come into play after the first three. They set out to make their own uh, ending. So I wonder, is that like a thing of like leaving fake stuff at a crime scene to throw people off the scent? Maybe. But um, so they weren't done yet anyway after killing Casey Cooper, CC. Riding high on, the su- on their success from that day, they decided to go to the frat house party for a close encounter with their primary target. It was time for Sydney Prescott to once again come face to face with the father, with father death, the ghost face killer. After killing CC, Mickey slipped back into the party, his absence going completely unnoticed. Nancy called in a tip to the police to draw attention to CC's body and give herself a distraction. She then put on the ghost face costume and got into position to wait for Sydney. I think this is the same thing as what Billy did when he first attacked Sydney. It's more about scaring Sydney than it is about killing her. 
Nancy wants to torture Sydney for what she did to Billy and take people away from her one by one before finally killing her. And Mickey just loves to watch the fear and anxiety he's causing Sydney and their little social circle in general. Him being there when Nancy attacks is, a, is good for an alibi too, in case somebody did notice later he went missing around the time of mm. CeCe's murder. As news of cops at the sorority house spread, the party cleared out with worried students making their way down to see what had happened. As the frat house emptied, Sydney could hear the landline ring, and after a moment's hesitation, she picked it up only to hear a, the voice of a ghost. A voice she thought was dead and buried. Hello, Sydney. Remember me? That must be chilling to hear after all she's been through, Betty and Stu. After a brief exchange, Nancy pounced, lunging at Sydney wildly with her knife. After a brief and clumsy chase, Sydney was saved when her college boyfriend, Derek Feldman, and good old Deputy Dewey Riley turned up to save the day. Where the hell did Dewey come from? Shit, did I forget to mention him so far? Dewey was there. Apparently, like, as soon as Maureen and Phil's bodies hit the floor, he was on a plane to Ohio. I'm exaggerating, but he was in Ohio as soon as news broke about the movie murders. Must be easy to get holidays from the Woodsboro Sheriff Department. Dewey was not holidays. He was still out in disability from the stab wound he received from Billy in Woodsboro. The stab had hit a nerve in his back, causing him to walk with a limp and stru- struggle with fluid mobility. I mean, he could get around, but you could tell he was under pressure. Shit, poor Dewey. Derek struggled with Nancy, but in the end, Nancy was able to break free by slashing Derek in the arm. Dewey was just behind him and missed Nancy by seconds. Sydney's just thinking, shit, here we go again. Yep, paranoia hit the original survivors like a ton of bricks. They trusted none of their new college friends, and that included Derek. Both Dewey and Sydney found it suspicious that the homicidal maniac chose to only superficially wound Derek instead of just stabbing her way out when he, she had, when he had her cornered in the house. In fact, enough suspicion was leaning in Derek's direction that it caused the cops to ask him a few questions. Derek was temporarily cleared and a security detail was put on Sydney to keep her safe. But even with that, Sydney just didn't feel right. She knew from experience someone close to her was behind all this. She realized that once again, someone close to her was about to destroy her trust in mankind. And I think even then, Sydney realized where her fate lay and what her future would hold. You may be thinking, oh, poor Sydney right now. What a terrible path to have to walk down in life. But in truth, this acceptance is what turns Sydney Prescott from poor final girl into a serial killer killing machine. And it's what would drive her to take out nine ghost face killers over a 25 year period. She's like Ripley from Alien. No fear. As I said, paranoia was running rife amongst the group and everyone was a suspect. After having the killer so close to them last time, who could blame them? Yeah, I'd be shutting myself off from the world just by a house in the woods or a mountain or something and making an impenetrable fortress. Yeah, that comes later. Huh, my God. But this was the start of her isolating herself. She told Derek she needed space for both of their safety. If he was the killer, then she needed to get away from him. If he wasn't the killer, then he needed to steer clear of her or risk becoming a victim himself. Unfortunately, a side effect of being close to Sydney was death. A side effect we were all about to become far too familiar with. This fatal event can't actually be classified as serial killing and is actually a killing spree. Serial killing is when a killer murders three or more people with cooling off periods in between each murder. Nancy didn't have the patience for that and only hours after committing a triple homicide the killers were out for more. All this happens over a weekend. By Sunday morning it's all wrapped up and over with. I'm afraid to ask, but who did she get? Like, I assume this is Nancy's one big solo kill you alluded to earlier. Nancy's one and only solo victim in the spree was one of our Woodsboro 96 survivors, Randy Meek. 
weeks. And Nancy had spent the morning stalking our core four group, waiting for the right time to strike. So when she saw Dewey, Randy and Gail sitting out on the college campus discussing who could possibly be next on the chopping block, she couldn't help herself and rang Gail's phone in an attempt to pile the pressure and anxiety on her would-be victims. But when Gail ignored the call, Randy picked up instead. The gang quickly came to the conclusion that the killer had to be close by and Randy needed to keep Nancy talking long enough for them to comb the area and see if they could catch her red-handed with the hot phone in her possession. But Nancy's no fool and as they searched the grounds for the offending caller, Nancy was baiting Randy towards her. Now, we can't be sure if Nancy had intended on killing Randy or if she had just been stirring shit with the call and things just, you know, went a bit too far. Mm. But witnesses claimed that Randy could be heard taking the piss out of Billy but calling him a pussy with mommy issues just moments before his disappearance. It's believed at that point Nancy must have seen Red taking her permanently over the line from murder accomplice to full-blown killer. Nancy had been hiding out in the back of a news van and when Randy got close enough she grabbed him pulling him into the van and into the sharp end of her knife stabbing him four times in the torso before slashing his throat open leaving him to bleed out and die as she made her getaway. Holy shit. This all kicked off Thursday. It's now Saturday. We're four bodies in and before the day ends, there will be six more dead with four more victims in the deaths of Nancy and Mickey themselves. Needless to say, authorities were under pressure and scrambling for a lead. They needed a suspect and fast and another familiar face from Woodsboro would be the one to fill that need. That man was cotton weary. What the hell is he doing here? Like, surely this is the last place he'd want to be. He just got cleared from the first murder. And now he shows up again, fresh out of prison with a new killer at stalk at the college campus. Like, surely he knew they'd jump to conclusions again. Yeah, pretty dumb move, all right. But you see, Cotton had been invited to Windsor College by Gail under the false pretense that an interview had been set up with Sydney to discuss the case of her mother's death at the hands of Billy and her wrongly accusing him of the crime. Cotton, like Gail, was fame-hungry. He wanted to use the media interest in Ghostface in the Ghostface case to build his own name up. And what better way to start than to finally have Sydney fully clear his name on live television? Sydney obviously wasn't in on this deal then, no? No, and from what I've read, she when she was confronted by Gail and Cotton at the college, Sydney got so angry that she punched Gail right in the face. Go, Sydney. Badass. It didn't take long for Cotton to draw some negative attention to himself, getting himself arrested and questioned over aggressively soliciting Sydney in the college library, trying to convince her to go on Diane Sawyer's talk show with him, promising a big payday and even going so far as to tell her she owed him for the misery he had been put through over the past two years as a wrongly accused murderer. But with no evidence to hold him and a fear of negative attention wrongly arresting a man just released from prison after being wrongly convicted of murder, Cotton was released and the cops were further away than ever when it came to a lead in the case. Officers decided at this point the smartest thing to do would be to get Sydney out of the area and into a safe house. So Sydney and her roommate Haley went back to their dorm to pack some things. In the meantime, Dewey and Gail had an idea to check Gail's uh, cameraman's video footage taken throughout the weekend as filler shots for Gail's reports. And the thought being that if the killer really was close by and relishing every second of the terror, then they might just show up in the clips and give themselves away. Using the college's video lab and editing suite, the odd couple began to comb through the footage looking for any clue to guide them on their hunt for the killers. But as they searched their video, feed was interrupted with new footage. Footage Gail had never seen before. Footage of Cece and Randy taken at them just moments before their deaths. 
A confused Galen Dewey stared at the footage, trying to make sense of what they were watching, and in that confusion, Nancy struck again, appearing out of what must have felt like thin air, and rushed at both Galen and Dewey at the same time, hoping the element of surprise would let her bag two birds with one stone. Nancy getting cocky with success. Yeah, well, I guess she thought that Dewey's disability gave her the upper hand here and took her shot. Mm. And the shot landed. After a brief chase around the video lab, Gail managed to find refuge in a soundproof radio studio. And on the outside of that studio, Dewey clumsily shuffled around watching out for Nancy while searching for Gail and a way out of the killer's reach. Just as Gail and Dewey locked eyes through a window looking in on the studio, Nancy struck, landing four blows into Dewey's back, leaving him to bleed out as she turned her attention to the grieving, distraught Gail. What the hell? Like you said, Nancy only got one kill. She got Randy, and now you hit me with Dewey's de- without warning. Ah, Dewey survives. Bar- yeah. Barely, but yeah. he lives to fight another day. Dewey, that man is made of steel. <laughs> anyway, after a bit more running and hiding, Gail got far enough away from Nancy that Nancy had to call it quits and get herself away from the crime scene, getting herself outside and out of costume, back into her role as mild-mannered reporter Debbie Salt. Meanwhile, inside, Gail was still frantically running the halls, desperately looking for help throughout the empty college halls, or almost empty college halls. Who did she find? The most unluckiest man in all of Woodsboro, Windsor, Cotton fucking Weary. God damn it, Cotton. <laughs> Cotton quickly tried to calm the frantic Gail, telling her he had found Dewey and wanted to know what the hell was going on. But Gail, seeing blood on Cotton's hands and knowing Cotton's temper, was quick to surmise that Cotton was the only logical person to be her attacker. She quickly pushed past him and ran to the main entrance to safety. But instead, she was met by Debbie Salt, and Debbie was in her endgame. Nancy was done with the cat and mouse games, and she was ready to finish out her revenge. She pulled a gun on Gail and told her to move. They were on their way to the stage. The final act was upon them. There was one more player missing from the game. The star of the show, the name on the marquee, the final girl, Sydney Prescott. But that was under control too, because before the cops could get her out of town, Mickey would get her and bring her to Nancy for one last tribute to Billy. One more sacrifice to the killer gods of her, for her son. The perfect ending to the perfect sequel. So how's Mickey going to get Sydney away from the police escort? Murder. Oh yeah, Sydney and me. I think of that? Mickey's job that night was solely to focus on Sydney and getting her to the college auditorium before she could be whisked away by the to a safe house and out of Nancy's reach. This was going to prove to be difficult because the cops weren't wasting any time and Mickey would have to think in his feet and strike fast to get his hands on Sydney. Ooh, I hope she gets away. As luck would have it, there was uh, some minor roadworks taking place near the college entrance, causing temporary traffic lights to be erected. Mickey, knowing this to be the only route out for the officers, took up base nearby, just waiting for the police car to pull up and stop at the red light. And sure enough, they did. And as Sydney and Haley helplessly watched from the back seat, Mickey burst in the window, stabbing the officers, killing the driver instantly. The other officer got into a struggle with Mickey and was temporary, temporarily knocked out. Mickey climbed into the car with the intention of just driving off at Sydney. But as he started the car, the other, the other officer got back up and took aim. Mickey panicking hit the accelerator, plowing into the officer, losing control and crashing into a pile of building supplies. I assume he killed the cop when he hit him with the car. Well, if the car didn't do it, then the pipe through his skull did. Wait, what? Yeah, when they hit the building supplies, a pipe went right through his head and into the car windscreen. Cock, bab. Yuck. <laughs> I don't know, pig tastes good. Oh, <laughs> The cop wasn't the only one injured in the crash. Mickey was knocked out cold too. Injured? I 
that's what we're calling a cop now. Injury. <laughs> yeah, just a mild case of death. Couple of days, he'll be right in his right <laughs> again. Anyway, the momentary lack of consciousness on Mickey's pack gave Sydney and Haley the chance to make an escape. But this being a cop car, they had they'd have to go through the front. The back doors could only be open from the outside, so they were stuck. This would mean climbing over Mickey's unconscious body to escape. Nope, couldn't do it. Yeah, he's wearing a mask too, so you can't even see if he's awake or not. They're just praying to the gods that he's really out and not just playing possum waiting for them to get close so he could strike. Surely your best bet, bet is to like kill him and then jump over him. Think that I had stand up in court or would you do time for it? That's I don't know. Isn't it? I, I, I honestly don't know. So what happened? Did they get out? They sure did. But Sydney couldn't walk away. She had to know who was under the mask. And when would she get a better opportunity than now? So ignoring Haley's pleas to run away and alert authorities, Sydney went back to the car to confront Mickey, only to find the car empty. And just as she turned to alert Haley, Mickey came up behind her, stabbing Haley in the neck four times, killing her as she reached out to Sydney for help. This is horrific, that poor girl. Sydney must feel terrible. She might have survived if she'd listened to Haley and ran away when they had the chance, though. You can't really blame Sydney for wanting to know a ton master killer, though. The mask yeah. holds a power. We've said it before. The, the unknown is scary. The faceless killer seems almost invincible. Plus, mm. by being able to identify the killer to the cops, it allows them to close in on Mickey and slow down, if not stop the killing spree almost immediately. Yeah. With Sydney reeling from the dead of yet another friend and her security detail, Mickey, like a farm dog, took to herding Sydney in, direct, in the direction of the university auditorium and into the final scenes of the Billy Loomis-inspired slasher sequel. These guys are the worst examples of horror fans. I hate that they live up to the stereotype violent movies and violent games made me want to kill people. Right? They ruin it for the rest of us. I mean, we watch lots of horror movies and play violent games all the time and we don't run around in silly costumes killing people. No, we just sit around for hours reading, writing and talking about people dressing up in silly costumes and killing people. Like good, well-adjusted, normal people. Oh yeah, we do. <laughs> As Sydney entered the auditorium, she was met with the sight of her boyfriend, Derek, tied to a cross and barely conscious. She was just about to untie him when Mickey arrived on the scene, revealing himself to Sydney and holding her at gunpoint. He proceeded to convince Sydney that Derek had been his accomplice all along, and as soon as he saw a flash of doubt hit Sydney's mind, he shot and killed Derek before revealing Nancy as his true partner in crime, playing with Sydney's fragile emotions one more time before ending her once and for all. Imagine Sydney's face when she sees Nancy for the first time. Like, how does she miss her around campus? Surely, makeover or not, Sydney would have recognised her ex-boyfriend's mom. Yep, she knew who she was dealing with as soon as Nancy walked on stage, Gail in tow, followed by following at gunpoint. The two Windsor, Woodsboro survivors listened as Mickey told them all of Nancy's master plan and his aspirations of getting caught to become a legendary serial killer in the same vein as Jack the Ripper or Ted Bundy. And as he laid out his defense, blaming violence in the media, Nancy took aim and bang, Mickey was gone. Good riddance. Nancy's plan was a little more simple than Mickey's and was inspired by her son's original plan. Kill Gail, kill Sydney, kill Mickey and make it look like a shootout, leaving Mickey with the credit of soul killer and all witnesses to Nancy's involvement dead. She could then abandon the identity of Debbie Salt and return to her life as Nancy. Sydney dead and buried and her son's finally her son finally avenged. But there was one thing Nancy didn't count on, and that was that the man who always seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time would finally show up where he was needed at the right time. 
But questions were still looming on where Cotton's loyalty really lay. How much of a grudge did he really harbour towards Sydney for the time locked away labelled a monster and a sex fiend? Nancy could see the conflict in Cotton's eyes. Nancy was offering him the chance to be the hero of the story. All he had to do was let her finish off Sydney and he could kill Gail. She'd disappear and he can tell the story of how he took Mickey down in a desperate but failed attempt to save the life of Sydney and spend the rest of his life doing interviews and collecting movie royalty checks and there'd be no one left alive to stand in his way he nearly would too wouldn't he according to sydney in her later book out of darkness there was a moment where she was sure cotton was going to agree to the deal Mm. so much so that it prompted sydney to say two words two simple words that instantly grounded cotton and brought him back to reality you want to know what those two words were oh i think i can guess this one go for it diane sawyer (laughs) hey got it in one without a second more talk cotton shot down nancy with sydney putting a bullet in both her and mickey's heads for good measure because like randy had always told her in his horror survival 101 courses even when you think the killer's dead he'll always come back for one last scare and with mickey and nancy dead it should be safe to say that the nightmare was over but the reality was everyone close to Sydney was dead. Her trust in people shattered and her mind plagued with PTSD. When this massacre was all said and done, she retreated to a heavily secured house in the middle of nowhere, cutting contact with all personal relationships, only keeping in contact with her father and Dewey. If no one could get close, no one could tear her down. But what Sydney didn't realise was she was only two thirds of the way through this revenge flick. And Ghostface would indeed be back one la- for one last scare. And with him, he would bring ghosts from the past. You see, all this time, there was one more killer looming over Sydney from the shadows. A person who claims complete responsibility for all three massacres. It's someone we met very briefly in episode one. We were about to get into the mystery of the creepy voice snitch that rang Nancy and told her about Hank's affair with Maureen. This man's name was Roman Bridger, and he was Sidney Prescott's brother. What? Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials! No good at Insta! Can't send a tweet, or an X, or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon! But we know... You want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always always try to reply to everyone so come say hi we don't bite well at least amy doesn't and she keeps me well fed so you got nothing to worry about now back to the show (laughs) today we're going to look at the mystery of maureen prescott rena reynolds and roman bridger we're also going to look at the abusive and corrupt hollywood studio system which in a way was the catalyst and fuel for the fire that was the ghostface killer it's really driven home in the Marilyn Monroe biopic, Blonde, that scene where she walks in for a movie audition and before she can open the script, she's bent over a table taking it from some disgusting movie producer scumbag. Yeah, at the time it was almost like they saw it as a right they had. Whether you could act or not was irrelevant. As long as you look good and you were willing to spread your legs for the right people, then you could be a star. Now you say at the time like it was a long time ago. 
Like this was seen as perfectly acceptable and expected behavior up until very, very recently. And I'm sure if we dug deep enough, there's still plenty of scumbags in the industry taking advantage of young, naive girls who are out there trying to chase their dreams. The level of damage this behavior has caused throughout the ages of the cinema is unfathomable. I can barely say that word, unfathomable. Mm. <laughs> but, but today's story should put it into perspective a little bit. As we see a young, optimistic, fresh-faced young girl get eaten alive by the Hollywood system and in effect set the wheels in motion for the ghost-faced massacres that have plagued so many innocent people for the past 28 years. Roman Bridger was born 3rd of February of 1970 and was the illegitimate son of the former unknown Hollywood actress going by the stage name of Rena Reynolds. So he's Neil's son. I mean, if this Rena lady is his mom and he's Sydney's brother, then logically Neil is his dad. Was he trying to take revenge on Neil for not giving him the family life he gave to Maureen and Sydney? Close, but switch out Maureen for Neil. I'm confused. Rena Reynolds with the stage name. Her real name was Maureen Prescott. Um, Maureen lived in Woodsboro all her life, except from 1969 to 1971 when she didn't. You see, Maureen was young once too, and just like any other teenager, she had dreams. Maureen wanted to be a famous actress just like her idols, Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe before her. So as soon as she came of age, she packed her bags and headed for Hollywood, scoring a meeting with the legendary horror producer John Milton almost immediately. Shit, Maureen, fair play. I've been on loads of auditions and they barely acknowledge I'm in the room like this girl moves to Hollywood and straight away she's rubbing elbows with major producers good going alright but unfortunately for Maureen fame and success come at a price oh is this another skin crawling moment yup this is Hollywood in the late 60s, early 70s, where female success was based more on their skills between the sheets than it was about your acting ability. Stuff like this didn't just start to happen at Harvey Weinstein. It was a long-running practice that every female star had to endure for their fame. So just like her idols, Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe before her, Maureen knew sooner or later she was going to have to take one for the team. Yuck. But unfortunately for Maureen, she was about to get a lot more than she bargained for. Do you realize how often stories about Maureen Prescott start with, unfortunately for Maureen, (laughs) this woman can't catch a break in life. It's like she's cursed. Yeah, and you're about to get a pretty nasty example of that curse right now. Like I said, it's old Hollywood. And as a female in that world, you are you accept that certain things have to be done to get to where you want to be. And Maureen was no different. And she had prepared herself for that fact. But what Maureen expected and what Maureen got were two very different things. Not long after meeting with John Milton, Maureen was invited to attend a party at his Bel Air mansion under the pretense that she was going to be networking with other Hollywood bigwigs. When she got there, though, what she discovered was a room full of old Hollywood producers. All men with no other female guest in sight. I've said it once and I'll say it again. Yuck. Once Maureen realized what was going on, she tried to leave. But John Milton took her aside and told her if she wanted to be big, if she wanted the big roles, then she had to be okay with doing it. And I quote, the dirty work. So Maureen went back into the party and after she got enough booze in her system, the dirty old men went to work. Gang raping Maureen over the course of a few hours, leaving Maureen a physical and emotional wreck. This shit is absolutely disgusting. And to think that this kind of behavior went so long unpunished is an absolute disgrace. 
Like, look at the damage it caused to this woman. Look at the road this trauma led her down. You have to know that this night is what led her promiscuous behavior going forward. Like, this led to her affairs, which then led to her murder and the murder of countless more. All because these perverted rich old men who had their bank accounts could have any bimbo they wanted, couldn't be professional and keep their dicks in their pants. Like castration would be too good for them. I say do it like Salem witch trials and burn the pricks at the stake. Or castration followed by burning. Yeah, I love it. Perfect. <laughs> the worst part of all this is the nasty old men didn't even see her as worthy enough of protection and not long after the rape, Maureen discovered she was pregnant with Roman. So she didn't even get to do any movies. She just goes to Hollywood, gets fucked, gets pregnant, and that's it. Not exactly. Maureen did get a few jobs from John Milton. She starred in a few of his horror B movies such, with credits such as Amazombies, Space Psychos, The Creature from the San Andreas Falls, and she also starred in Tree of John's Plays, The War on Earth, Young Women, and I Want to Scream. Why does John Milton sound so familiar to all this? As soon as you mentioned him, I instantly connected him to Ghostface. Because John Milton was the main producer behind the first three Stab movies. How does he produce the third movie? Uh, at this stage, there's only been two killing sprees. And from the little I read about him, I know he was the last victim of Romans, putting him in the story of Stab 3 rather than the production of it. The studio wanted to cash in on the success of the first two movies and make the story a trilogy. This was to be the first Stab movie made with no source material. The making of this movie would eventually become the source material for the eventual Stab 3 that was released. But originally, it was going to be 100% fiction. I also might add that we have all this information from Gail's book, Stabbed in the Back, The Real Sunshine Store, Sunrise Story, and Scream Tree, the documentary made, movie made by Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, as the follow-up to their other two documentaries following the Ghostface phenomenon. Anyway, back to Sunrise Studios, and Maureen, now heavily pregnant, was alone and out of work. Hollywood had no room for pregnant teens and less room for single mothers, so the parts had dried up, and on top of this, Maureen was depressed, making her her difficult to work with anyway. Maureen had this thing growing inside her that she didn't want, and that feeling wasn't going away. She had no maternal feeling growing inside her. In fact, she dreaded the day she had to lay eyes on the monster that was coming that was going to come out of her. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the way she saw him. Roman was the personification of the degradation and humiliation she had been put through in John Milton's mansion. He would be a walking, talking reminder of the pain and suffering she had went through, and now it seems she went through for nothing. Maureen could see the writing on the wall. She knew her chance at Sunrise Studio was spent, and she didn't care, because the whole experience had soured her on her dreams, and now all Maureen wanted to do was get this kid out of her, give it away, and get back to Woodsboro, where she could leave this all behind and pretend like it never happened. And that's exactly what she did. So after giving birth to Roman, she gave him up for adoption, moving back to Woodsboro, where she met Neil, got married, and started a family. And for 25 years, that's the way it stayed. Roman out of sight and out of mind. But just like many kids who have been put up for adoption, Roman got curious to his origins and started to do some research. Research that would lead him to the Prescott home and a confrontation with Maureen that he had not anticipated. Oh, shit. She rejected him. That sucks. Like, not a reason to kill people, but it's still shitty for him. Yeah. When confronted, Maureen with little expression said, You're Rena's child and Rena's dead before slamming the door shut right in Roman's face. Now, here is the point in the story where we have two narratives to choose from. 
and it is a hotly debated topic online. Mm. According to Roman, the rejection he received from his birth mother, birth mother flicked a switch in his head for murderous revenge. He claims that after the encounter with Maureen, he was determined to destroy the perfect little family she had built. And once he had done that, he would kill her and leave Rena exactly as Nancy said she was, dead and buried, forgotten in the small town of Woodsboro. Roman claims that he stalked Maureen for a few weeks, looking for a weakness or an angle to her life that he could exploit or take advantage of. It was through this surveillance that he spied Maureen taking off for her steamy afternoon hookups with Hank and Cotton. And through further surveillance of the men, he figured out that the Loomis's family were his ideal targets. He then claims he was the man to call Nancy using the trademark Ghostface voice box, telling her about all of Hank's extramarital misdeeds. Just like we heard about in episode one, so far all this lines up with the story we know. But here's where things take a turn. Roman claims that he made contact with Billy, that he was the one to tell Billy everything, that he showed Billy video footage of Hank meeting up with Maureen, and that this was the reason for his mother's sudden absence. He then claims he mentored Billy, training him in the ways of the serial killer, helping him plan the attacks and even how to get away with it, setting up the Ghostface movie narrative, even going so far as to advise Billy to find an accomplice he could use as a patsy if everything went wrong. So Stu was never Billy's partner. He was more like an insurance policy. According to Roman, yes. You don't believe that, do you? No. You see, the evidence just isn't there to support it. Roman is a virtual unknown in the story until he takes on the Ghostface title for himself. When investigations were done to check out the validity of his claims, it was found that Roman was nowhere near Woodsboro in 1996. And looking at phone records of Billy and Roman, there isn't any known communication between the two. Investigators took all this very seriously, considering that over the space of four years, five connected individuals went on three killing sprees. They needed to know, was there anyone left, anyone else connected to the killers who could take a stab at being Ghostface next? So what do you think really happened? I think Roman did stalk Maureen, and he did want to ruin her life. He was obviously capable of murder, so maybe that was the goal at first, and maybe he lost his nerve. I mean, at this point, Roman hadn't killed anyone yet, at least not that we know of. Yeah. I think when he saw Maureen cheating on Neil, he thought it would be enough to ruin Maureen's home life. Uh. So he rang Nancy, hoping she would snap and reveal everything to everyone. He didn't anticipate that Nancy would just decide to bail from the situation. I think at that point, he went back to Hollywood to lick his wounds and maybe work out a new plan. And again, we know this man is capable of murder. So when he eventually lost his killer virginity in L.A., he would have most certainly been back to finally finish off Maureen. But if you snooze, you lose. And before Roman could work up the courage to kill, Billy beat him to the punch. And for the next few years, Roman watched as the Loomis saga played out in in Woodsboro and Windsor, enjoying the collapse of the Prescott family and the torture of his little sister during the process so he's just sitting around LA at this point doing nothing oh shit sorry I just assumed everyone knew who Roman Bridger was Roman Bridger grew up around Sunrise Studios maybe feeling guilty for his past actions John Milton kept Roman close after his adoption providing opportunities to Roman in the film business mentoring him to in a degree so much so that there was always a rumor around the studio lot that Roman was John's illegitimate son what's the odds here one in five one in ten 
How many guys could have been there that night with poor Maureen? Not a clue. I couldn't find info on that anywhere. But yeah, there's a fair chance he could be Roman's biological father. Mm. So Roman grew up around film and aspired to be a famous movie maker and director, which is another reason I don't think he had much to do with the first two sprees. Mm. I think that when he saw Sydney escape the second round of attacks, Roman decided to get it done right. He'd have to do it himself. But Roman is a storyteller, and I truly believe the master puppet's murderer was a narrative he had built up in his head. I believe in his head all these killings were just live action script writing and he needed this story to make him what Stu and Mickey wanted to be before him. The big bad iconic psycho killer. It's almost like his backup plan. If he gets away with everything he'll frame Sydney and achieve what his predecessors couldn't. He'll go on to huge fame and be the biggest name in cinema and if he gets caught he has the distinction of being a murder mastermind. The killer cult leader who directed his minions to murder 14 people before going on to take eight himself. He'll feature in books, movies, studi- uh, movies and studies. His name never forgotten and his legacy will well and truly be cemented in time. <laughs> he pulled it off too. To a degree, it's accepted he had some hand in the first massacre, whether that was him snitching on Hank and sitting the ball rolling or that he was the guy behind Billy showing him the ways from the shadows. What about Nancy and Mickey? All Nancy's doing. All evidence shows Roman had no idea this was happening. People who were close to Roman at the time of the Windsor attack say he was glued to the news all that weekend and the week going forward. Friends say he seemed almost surprise excited, like he couldn't believe what was happening but seemed overjoyed by it. And no one thought this was weird at the time. They they did, but Roman's an artsy movie geek. They just figured he was excited because of the cinema link. The killers inspired by the film To Kill and... Now, the copycat killers who strike on opening night of the film about the killers who kill because of films that you know show people killing. Yeah. It was weird, but he wasn't hurting anyone, so it was just kind of ignored. Yeah. So, like I said, Roman worked at Sunrise Studio, mainly writing and directing music, music videos, with one or two credits for episodes of Dawson's Creek 2. I fucking hated Dawson's yeah, Creek. We were talking like about this Dawson's last Creek. night. In Ireland, you had, like, in the 90s, we had, like, three channels. For most of the 90s. Eventually, we got a fourth. Yeah. And one of those channels was an all-Irish speaking as well. So, if you didn't speak Irish fluently, there was no point in watching that channel. Mm. And if you did speak Irish fluently and you were a child, there was no point watching that channel because it was boring as fuck because I could speak the language and I never watched it. Except for the one time when they had So Park on it dubbed in Irish. That was mental. (laughs) They used to have their Dungeons and Dragons game on as well. Yeah, but we were talking about... uh, Dawson's Creek mm-hmm. was literally like as a child when you saw Dawson's Creek was I was like oh, oh balls. shit and it was always followed by fucking Felicity and Party of fucking Five it was yeah, just a trilogy of boredom mm-hmm. if you were a fucking kid and there was nothing if you changed over to RT1 you were getting the news mm-hmm. <laughs> if you went to the other one it was the Irish speaking channel and it would be you know some fucking farmer speaking Irish <laughs> and I love yeah. the Irish language but when you're a kid you just want English. Yeah. So, I, and I mean, and that was for most of like Irish people, unless you had money, you had three channels. Yeah. Sky was, was expensive. It. We used to get it like intermittently. We, mm. we, we, when there was an offer on, we'd have it. And then once they put up the price, it would be gone again for mm. a while. 
And he went back to Rome, and he was hungry for more success and had been begging John Milton for... Fu- oh, yeah, fuck you, Roman, for making fucking Dawson Creek's episode. That's where I was getting at. <laughs> he was hungry for more success, and he had been begging John Milton for funding for a rom-com he had in mind to make. Milton agreed to fund the movie on one condition. First, Roman would have to write and direct Stab Tree, the first of the series to be 100% fiction with no source material, at least not yet. Roman protested this decision in public, but behind closed doors, he couldn't believe his luck. Mm. Now was his chance to make history and finally put the final cut in his long-running revenge plot to annihilate the Prescott family. This time, instead of murders being adapted into movie, his movie will be adapted to real life. Roman wrote his script for a stab tree, not with the plans to make it on a sound stage, but instead as a blueprint to his own killing spree. And unlike the ghost face who killed before him, he will be a success. And by the time it was all said and done, he would finally kill Sydney, along with her reputation, letting her die a monster, destroyed by the life choices of her sexually depraved whore mother. Shit. <laughs> Roman knew his opening scene had to make a splash. He knew to solidify himself as number one mastermind ghostface killer, he would have to outdo the murders of both Casey Becker and Maureen Evans before him. So he set his eyes on something new. Instead of attacking a random newbie, why not go after a survivor right from the start? The Ghostface killings now have a legacy, and with a legacy comes legacy survivors. And why stop there? Why not go right back to the start of the story? Someone big with a presence. Someone who will be missed, not just by a few, but by a nation of loyal fans. It was with that Roman set his crosshairs on Cotton Weary. Currently riding high with his ratings and talk show fame. On February 1st in the year 2000, Cotton Weary and his girlfriend Christine Hamilton were found butchered in their luxury Hollywood apartment. Although there was clearly a real struggle put up on Cotton's part, no evidence or DNA linking Roman to the crime were found. All the killer left behind was a photo of a young girl, maybe 18, 19 years old, standing on a Sunrise studio lot sometime in the 70s. This woman was Rena Reynolds, and later identified to police by Gail Weathers as a young Maureen Prescott. I assume it didn't take Gail long to get into the middle of all the fun. No, it didn't take long for the three survivors to band back together, but to be honest, it was by design. Roman knew Gail would naturally make her way to the crime scene. It's just in her nature. But he knew that wouldn't be enough to draw Sydney in. So he hired Dewey Riley as a consultant on the set of the new Stab movie, drawing him in close to the action too. He also needed Dewey close because if Sydney didn't come to LA of her own accord, he would have to go find her. And he knew only two people had her number and her current location, them being Neil Prescott. Her dad, so that makes sense. And Dewey. Dewey being the goof that he was known to be from time to time eventually did leave his phone unattended, giving Roman the chance to get the number and call Sydney, taunting her, making her think he was close and coming to get her. This, coupled with the pictures left behind in the crime scene of her mother, forced Sydney back into the game. But a tough in Sydney had lived through this twice before. 
She had been hardened by loss and she wasn't going to stand idly by as more people were picked off around her. She was done being the victim and she was ready to take on Roman. So she went to, straight to LA and checked in with LAPD homicide detective Mark Kincaid, a man she would later go on to marry and have three kid- children with. A little happy ending in the middle of all the murder. At least we know Sydney eventually got the life she deserved. So with everyone in place, Roman went into berserker mode, killing his first three victims all in the same day. First on the chopping block was B-list actress Sarah Darling, who was cast as the opening celebrity death for Stab Tree, the big boobed hot blonde to get the guys into the cinema on opening weekend. She was found stabbed and impaled on a piece of broken glass that was stuck in the frame of a broken window in the Sunrise Studio for Laugh. This murder was instantly linked to Cotton's death due to another picture of Maureen being left with the body. And with that, production of Stab Tree was shut down immediately by the studio. Yeah, makes sense. Bound to get bad press, especially if they kept going and more actors died. That night, the remaining Stab Tree actors had themselves a little rap party at the house of Gail Weathers actress Jennifer Jolie. It was here Roman would leave two more bodies. First, Stephen Stone, the bodyguard of Jennifer Jolie, was found stabbed outside the front door of the house. From the blood trail, it appeared he had been attacked in a trailer sitting outside the back of the property and stumbled to the front in search of assistance. Heavy stuff. It's clear from his next move that Roman was losing patience with the process and was dying to get to the part where he frames and kills Sydney. While the actors all drank in the house, Roman cut the power, leaving them in darkness before turning on the gas line leading into the home. Most of the people inside got out before the tragedy struck, but one actor was not so lucky. The fax machine had been printing new pages to the Stab Tree script, something all the actors were dying to see because they'd surmised, with Sarah Darling being killed first and her being the opening movie kill, that the killer might go after the actors in the order of the script. But with the constant script changes and rewrites, they couldn't be sure which version of the script the killer had. Tom Prince couldn't sit by and wait, and when he saw the script began to print in front of him, he couldn't just leave it behind. So as his colleagues huddled together for safety in the backyard, Tom read aloud for them each page as it came out, still warm from the fax machine, using the light coming from the flame on his lighter. He read as the script read that the next victim would be the one who smells the gas. And with that line, the house exploded into flames, Tom Prince with it, as he unwittingly set himself aflame with the lighter he'd used to read his debt warrant from. Not quite done yet, Roman made one more attempt at murder, chasing down Gale, only to have Dewey scare him off with a few bullets to the vest. Pity these fucks always remember the body armor. Always go for the head. Now, while all this was going on, John Milton was planning a little party to celebrate Roman's 30th birthday to be held at his Bel Air mansion. Despite five people being killed over the past two days, great time to celebrate. Yep. So with the remaining cast invited along with Dewey and Gale, the potential victims made their way to Bel Air and to Roman's final showdown. Please tell me Sydney had a sense to stay away from all this. Yeah, she tried. She was back at the police station with Kincaid. Problem was, Sydney knew, as usual, the killer would be someone close to her and currently in her life in some way. She started to question Kincaid and his motives. Then, when she got a call from Roman teasing what he planned to do to Gail and Dewey, she kind of had her hand forced and made her way to the mansion without the knowledge of the LAPD or any backup bar, a small gun hid in her ankle. 
But before Sydney got there, Roman had a few more bodies to dispose of. Once Roman's intimate party began at Milton's mansion, so too did his murder mystery game. In attendance were Angelina Tyler, Tyson Fox, Jennifer Jolie, Gail Weathers and Dewey Riley, along with John Milton himself. Before Sydney made it to the mansion, Roman had managed to stab and kill Tyson Fox and Jennifer Jolie, along with seriously wounding Angelina Tyler, who bravely survived, barely survived her injuries. He also had managed to capture and subdue Dewey Gale and Milton, needing them all alive for his final act with Sydney. He wanted to make her watch as he killed Dewey and Gale, and Milton was needed to confirm the Rena Reynolds story to Sydney. Holy shit, these killers really put thought into these plans. Everything set out to cause the main target the most amount of misery before they eventually kill her, on top of the fact that they also have to lay groundwork with everything they do to keep eyes off them and make it plausible that one of the Prescotts have went crazy and on a murderous rampage. So many plates spinning in the air at the same time, like I'd fall apart trying to keep it all running smoothly. Revenge is a hell of a motivator. Yeah. In the meantime, Detective Kincaid had noticed Sydney's absence, and it didn't take a genius to realize where she had gone. So when Sydney arrived at the mansion, it's safe to say he wasn't very far behind her. In her book, Out of Darkness, Sydney describes the whole scene. She says upon arrival, Roman rang her. He was watching her from nearby and instructed her to use a nearby metal detector wand, similar to the ones used by security in in an airport, to sweep her entire body. Then, once unarmed, she could enter the mansion. From here, she scrambled around through the debris left from the earlier killings, trying to find Gail and Dewey to free them before Roman could get to her. But after some back and forth fighting and chasing, including a tense moment with Detective Kincaid, who had entered the mansion without the knowledge of Sydney, Sydney found herself locked in a home cinema room with Roman and John Milton. It was then Roman pulled off his mask and filled Sydney in on his motive. He told her how the room they stood in was the room used in the gangbang rape of their mother. The room he was conceived in and the catalyst for his anger and violent tendencies. He did all this while killing Milton right in front of Sydney. Along with revealing his first encounter with Maureen and his involvement in Billy and Stu's killings, he ranted like a child about how the jealousy he felt towards Sydney was his reason for acting out the way he had. How she had stolen his childhood and family and this was his revenge. She would die in his hands and he would frame her, saying that at the prospect of yet another movie being made based on her life drove her over the edge, causing her to go on a killing spree, killing the cast and crew that were making it happen. He would be the sole survivor and the hero of the story and the ghostface killings would finally be put to an end permanently. Wouldn't that be nice? Sorry, what? Oh shit, the killing's ending, not Roman winning, right? Fuck that whiny baby. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Tired of hearing another killer blaming their circumstances of their life on her, Sydney berates Roman, who gets angered enough to attack her, leading to a fight. Roman manages to gain the upper hand, but a distraction by Kincaid allows Sydney to grab his knife. He, however, finds Kincaid's gun and shoots her, knocking her down. He shoots her in the chest to be certain of killing her. But Dewey and Gale, on the verge of breaking into the room, distracts him for a moment. And when he turns around, Sydney is gone. Oh, the tables have turned, motherfucker. Roman incensed tore the room apart, trying to find her just as Billy had done four years earlier in Woodsboro. And just like then, she burst out of nowhere, taking her attacker by surprise, stabbing Roman several times in the back before finally plunging the knife deep into his heart. She then knelt down and held her brother's hand as he died, almost a small reconciliation at the last minute between the troubled siblings. And with that, 
the Prescott Loomis revenge story is at an end. And Ghostface is back at rest, waiting patiently for his next host to hear his vengeful cry. He would stay that way for over a decade, despite a few failed attempts to lure him back into public consciousness. From here on, the revenge takes a backseat to the promise of fame. Sydney had set precedent the fame and fortune could be found amongst the blood, something that would eventually hit close to home and return us to Woodsboro once again in our next Ghostface episode, which you will hear in maybe a few months. Oh, major super cliffhanger. But since this is the reboot and we're remaking it a couple of weeks beforehand, you actually get to hear it like next week. Yep. <laughs> Major cliffhanger, not really. <laughs> what a story and what an episode. Three killers, 17 dead, 14 victims. It's all so much. And we're not done yet. When we eventually return to Woodsboro, we will meet the next generation of Ghostface killers and Jill Roberts and Charlie Walker, along with a new crazy stab-obsessed family in the curses, not to mention all the failed copycats around the world will be doing Ghostface stories for another while, yes. If you like what you hear, go check out our Patreon for more true crime and horror shows, with exclusive shows going up there every week. Subs only $5 a month. And don't forget to check out our mini-sodes dropping Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday on Spotify and all other platforms. But for this week, we're done. We gotta go. But don't worry because we'll be right back. I'm Dr. HR Smokestein THC. And I'm Amy Rose getting ready to take you back in time next week with a bloody Victorian slasher case. Sounds awesome. Can't wait. It's Alive Alive. All the guts and gore with none of the guilt. See you next week. Same Alive Alive time. Same Horrorverse channel. I love you. Bye bye. Hey lady, I love you. Bye bye.